Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 164, A Feast for Crows Prologue, Pate, featuring Nate of Brotherhood Without Manners. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. I haven't said that in a long ass time. Who? <laughs> right? I was like, <laughs> I actually was like, how do I introduce this episode? How do I open? <laughs> it's usually like every week I usually open. Oh. I have to tell you, Eliana, you say this, but this time I let you go in. I'm sorry. You did. You did. And, you know, we are joined <laughs> by another, another other host today. And I will say, you know, uh. We'll talk a little bit about the process of how we how we figured out uh, who's guessing this week in a second. But hello, everyone. It's Nate. What's up? Hi. Welcome to me. Thank you. Yeah, our third girl gone canon. We could not <laughs> yes. be more excited. I haven't gotten to hang out with you since Aria 8 in Storm over at your podcast, where yes. you guys are doing a very spoilery reread of A Song of Ice and Fire, and it's been a, a long time coming. You are, you're just fin- getting to the Red Wedding, and you're going yeah. like in order? Beginning to end is the plan here, and yeah, we're we're coming straight through the Red Wedding right now. And yeah, we we had a blast with you when you came over to, to join us over in the Brotherhood, and so it's it's great to be a girl now. I like it. Good. Feeling good. Good. Uh, not a lot of perks. Still the same amount of sadness, melancholy, sorry to say, but you know, that's the podcast. I think I can I think I can manage that. We'll be good. Now, I know you guys are on most major platforms, I think, right? If you're looking you guys up, you'd be looking right. at Brotherhood Without Manners and you're over at brotherhoodwithout.com. Is there anywhere else we can find you guys online? Pretty much everywhere, any podcast platform, the same ones that you guys plug, you know, Odyssey and Pandora and I don't know, there's so many to remember these days, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and Amazon Music and you just search for Brotherhood Without Manners, we're there, but, you know, mostly socially we're active, I'm active on Twitter, Zach doesn't do anything that guy is pretty useless but he uh Dang. we're on yeah I, I do twitter a lot at manners without when i can but i'm a busy guy i'm not as active as i should be on twitter so i don't you know. know i think everyone could do with touching grass so you're doing <laughs> good you're doing good are uh, are you guys doing anything for hot d coming up are you going to do any house of the dragon yeah, so we're thinking, we're not sure yet if it's going to be only Patreon. Mm. We've been lax on our Patreon this year, so we're really stockpiling some content over there. And so we're we're debating on if it's going to be just that or some crazier content. But we're definitely going to cover it. But I'm not sure which House of the Dragon format we're planning on taking, episodic or every couple episodes, spoiler-free, full spoiler. We're we're still tossing around ideas, but yes, we will be covering it in some format. I can't wait to hear that. Please also, uh, is it, what's your Patreon? I just, patreon.com slash without manners. Okay, perfect, perfect. We'll link that below and make sure everyone can grab that link. I will be listening. <laughs> You know, we did the, what are they called now? The chapters that were released from Wins, the pre-release stuff. And so we covered all those, but we did those early on in our reread. So we think we're going to cover them again now that we've Mm. refreshed on some of these later chapters and where the hell the characters are. So we'll be doing some other stuff. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. We're we're planning a lot of good things now. I'm envious. We too will be revisiting POVs, Eliana, like Sansa when we start a new POV next month. (laughs) 
<laughs> I should, I want to start back, you know. I'm always talking about redoing POVs. So I was like, ooh, what, what an interesting idea when you said that you were doing that. We're so excited to have you with us. And next week, we'll be back for Veramir in A Dance with Dragons, a Dabada, affectionately. And we'll actually be there with your other half, right? With Zach. Yeah, my life partner, my brother. <laughs> uh, that one. He's he's around somewhere doing, you know, the same thing he does on the podcast. Probably nothing, not much. Oh my god! Oh my god! Place, but he's great. You guys, you guys are gonna love him. I, uh, I'm. I, he's been talking a lot about the Veramir chapter, so I'm really excited to what he's gonna bring to you guys. But damn, I'm excited. He's little brother, right? Yeah, he's little brother. Yeah. So it's okay. okay. Just it's wanted okay. to make sure that's obvious. If you didn't know. Because I'm getting the luxury of guesting first, he he talks down on me a lot, man, oh. on our episode. So I had to jump in first before he gets the chance next week and just really tears me down. So, you know. You guys were oh pretty gosh. mean to each other when I was there. That's all right, though. We both like the books, so it's okay. But I like you know. that. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> That I mean to you? Yeah, I think so. Uh, um, without further delay. Wait, wait, I just, I just want to <laughs> say, get into you know, being mean to Eliana. We, no. When we were deciding, you know, who should be this week's episode, right? Who, who, which, which of the brothers? <laughs> and it, this is a lie. I actually made this up right before we started the episode. This is not true at all. But it's because Nate rhymes with Pate. So you're like, of course, it makes perfect sense. This is not true. This is not that's true. That's what I had always assumed was the truth. And so moving forward, that's my canon. Yeah, this is canon That's now. what I'm going. I've been saying all day, Nate, Nate, it rhymes with Pate. Yes. You have your own rhyme yeah. now. We've retconned have this. Have your own rhyme. We've retconned our, our first podcast, retconned. <laughs> it's funny because everybody always says, you know, about the POVs that we're going to do. They're like, they they have some sort of maniacal reasoning behind the order of the POVs and they're trying to unravel it. Uh, but sometimes, no, there's no reason. Just like this. No reason. Just because it rhymed. Just because it exactly. rhymed. What better reason? I'm so glad to have you here for kind of like a, it starts off a little jovial in light of a chapter. And then it gets a little dark. So we'll get into that. But first things first, we'll jump into some housekeeping. And this month, for our Patreon bonus episode, we will have something out by the end of the month for our patrons in the stranger tier, $5 and above. However, I think you should be ruminating, ruminating on the episode from last month that critics are calling the saddest fucking episode to grace the Patreon channel. Other critics are saying, sad, but also funny. Uh, these critics are me and Eliana, personally, I know them. But we did do an episode on grief in A Song of Ice and Fire last month, which you can access over at our Patreon if you're in that $5 and above tier. And something else that we, you can find on our Patreon is, of course, access to our patron Discord. And once a month, we do a Patreon brunch, which has games, giveaways, shenanigans, get-to-know-yous. I, I messed up the alliteration there for a second. But... This month, uh, our Discord brunch will be on August 28th, which is a Sunday from 2 to 4 p.m. And as always, our Discord is open to patrons in the Thunder tier and above, the $10 and above tier. Yeah. Now I know everyone's excited that Eliana has finally returned from being Eliana Farman 
gracing across oh. the east. She's brought Sun Chaser on back. She's here. She stole those dragon eggs, and I fucking want them back. But now that she's back, we are finishing up our last His Dark Materials Amber Spyglass episode. For those of you tuning into His Dark Materials, that will be back at the end of the month. The final episode featuring Haley Bowery from the Manimals and uh, from the Drinking Game of Thrones Brooklyn podcast. You may know her also from the concept, A Song of Ice and Fire themed album, Seven, which is amazing. And if you haven't downloaded it, I don't know what's wrong with you, what kind of fan you are. Fix your life. Uh, But you'll have to tune in for that episode if you like His Dark Materials. It will be a blast. And Eliana, we have some other great news to bring to the people. We do. We do have some other great news. So now that Chloe has finished unleashing the D, we cannot put it back in. Oh my fucking god. (laughs) We cannot put it back. And now we just have to live with it, alright? The D is in our house. The house of the dragon, if you will. And we're going to talk about it. Yes, weekly, we are going to be putting out House of the Dragon episodes upon premiere after 821. Uh, We're thinking these are going to be coming out on Wednesdays, so keep your eyes peeled on a a podcast platform near you. And not only that, but we are thinking of doing some post-episode discussions with some of our patrons over at Discord, the Thunder Tier and above. Uh, So more details will be coming out on that. Please do stay tuned for next week's episode with Zach from the Brotherhood Without Manners because we will let you know a few more details on that and the Patreon episode this month as well. I really worked hard not to groan while you went through that part. Just for Zach. Just for Zach. Aw, a brotherly love. (laughs) Without further ado, it's time to get into our lightning round which this week's lightning round is going to be a little different from other lightning rounds that you may have attended. Yes, this week, we are going back to school. We're going back to magic school, as we've discussed before, and that means that we've got some stuff to take care of to get everyone on the same page. So we are here at the Citadel for Syllabus Week. Folks, that's right. Yes, we are going back to school at the Citadel, the home to complex buildings, maesters, and many, many burbs. The higher place members at the Citadel are maesters. Some teach and train students convening in the conclave, while others are sent to the homes of high lords and ladies to help serve them and maybe, you know, do a little itty-bitty spying. The Citadel is funded by the taxes of Old Town as well as payments by the lords and ladies who use their service. Lord Leighton Hightower is currently titled the Protector of the Citadel, which sits on the Honeywine. Its towers connected with stone bridges, houses, and stalls sitting upon them. Great sphinxes with lion bodies, eagle wings, and serpent tails guard the gates of the Citadel. One has the face of a man and one a woman. Do you have your first class schedule handy? Let's take a look at where we might be going. Scribe's Hearth is our first stop in the Citadel. If you've got Scribing 101 on your schedule, you're likely a fresh young acolyte ready to serve, write, and read letters for the citizens of Old Town. You'll be sitting in an open stall for your shift, writing, reading, and even selling and buying books and maps. The path divides after the Scribe's Hearth and King Darren I atop a tall stone horse... His sword pointing at Dorne and a monument of Jaehaerys I with a plinth 
reading, He bound the land together and made of seven kingdoms one. Or maybe you're looking to attend blackbirds and you spread your wings. You'll need to head over to the Isle of Ravens on the eastern bank of the Honeywine. Marked by a werewood tree, taking the white ravens and me courses here? Head to the White Raven Rookery in the West Tower. Or maybe you're ready for long hours of studying, embracing the finest books in all of the Seven Kingdoms, and more. Come check out some of our most famed books, like The Lives of Four Kings by Grand Maester Kaith, detailing Darren I through Darren II's kingships, more notably being known for being chopped in half by our good King Joffrey Baratheon. Maybe you want to read Unnatural History, or the partial collection of Valyrian history, Fires of the Freehold, or our sole remaining copy of Blood and Fire, sometimes known as the Death of Dragons. Also, it's super totally rare and really locked up well, so you shouldn't go looking for it. Or maybe you've been given punishment for failing a course, or mouthing off to your seniors, or for existing. Or maybe you just need to ask the Seneschal something administrative. Either way, you should head over to the Seneschal's court where it won't be awkward at all for you. Or maybe you're feeling like you should jump a boat and get away instead of accepting this punishment, or the equally tedious waiting for the Seneschal, in which case the Weeping Dock will take you to the bloody Also, island. just a note from faculty this year, students, please don't pet the stuffed little Valyrian anymore. It's already naked enough from you fools petting off all its fur over the years for good luck. Have a great first semester at Westeros U. I feel like we need, like, the cheerleading team in the yeah, background. Yeah. Maesters, like, maesters. Towers. Oh, yeah, or towers. I don't know. <laughs> like, what would their, yeah, I'm guessing, which is kind of a stupid mascot, but I mean, you know, that's the reach. That's the reach. What was it going to be, roses? <laughs> uh, yeah, Citadel. It's college, you know. It's uh, syllabus week. I'm excited to be here. And, like, all jokes aside, <laughs> okay, uh, all jokes aside, sure. This is kind of a cool chapter. I, I found more each time I went like into it. Even when I, I this mm-hmm. morning I said I was done taking notes, right? And then I just kept taking more notes. Even jokingly writing that stuff, I realized a few things about the Citadel. I was like, oh, what does this mean? What does this mean? And it is an important chapter, right? Before the, the split between A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, George has said this is actually... This would still be the prologue had he not split Feast into two books. Pate was 100% the prologue character. I love that. Uh, Varamir was an invented prologue character for the, the next... Not invented at the time, obviously. He's been in the story, but he invented the prologue up for him. Do you think he would have used Varamir as the prologue for wins if he didn't hmm. split Interesting. them? Or do you think he had someone already planned for that one? That's really interesting, especially if you think about the brand chapter, right? That he cut and moved around. I wonder if we could have a very different order in wins had that been the prologue. I don't know. I don't think so, though, because we now know his plan for wins, right? Sure. Now. As far as, yeah. It probably changed a lot. I'm sure it changed a few times. Now that we say it out loud. (laughs) What do you think, Eliana? (sighs) Yeah, I, I think uh, he always kind of had that plan for uh, whatever is going to involve Jane Westerling, right? Like, mm-hmm. for something. And now it's for wins, right? Because obviously we did not used to have seven books. We used to have, what, three, then five, and now we have 
27 and it's it's just what it is oh my God. <laughs> it's just what it is and yeah yeah I, I mean it is interesting that it the original conception was for pate but i do think that having that Veramir prologue has actually given us a lot too um both of them work well for their books but i you know, reading through this, you can really see how this prologue would have worked for a lot of those chapters as well in dance. Yeah, especially joined together. Though I think I really do enjoy this as the that precursor to Feast, right? Especially Sam's chapters, the travelogue we get on the way to the Citadel. Um, examining a little bit of that, I just think it's so rich. All of, all of, we just finished Sam, right? technically a few weeks ago months ago really truly but we did just finish sam and like reading only his chapters and now coming to this Mm -hmm. is mind-blowing it's so great it's so enriching yeah it's neat to see because where we're at we're sam has hasn't even returned back to the wall after the fist and so knowing that this is his trajectory and where he's going to be going once he hits feasts versus you know because we're about to hit feasts obviously we're red wedding but you know seeing where he is now and how he's going to get down here and this going on when he's on his journey down as opposed to how much further he has to get there it's it's a he's got a lot of growing in between there yeah yeah absolutely i mean feast is his growth book for sure Right. Yeah. And I mean, not only is this on the heels of Sam, right? It's also because we put all the prologues together, just just a chapter. And by that, I mean several episodes afterwards, because, again, girl gone. But uh, just like two after Crescent, right? So there, you've got a lot of connection there mm-hmm. with, um, you know, coming back to this focus on maesters. And you're talking about Sam coming here, but you also have that weaving into... Maester Eamon's story as well. Yeah, and the the Stannis effects, right? Uh, in Crescent, you have kind of the vibe of Stannis being there, and even here you have the vibe of R'hllor encroaching upon Old it's Town, true. and it's very old religious kind of sanctitude. Not only is this chapter focused on aspects of the Citadel and learning, but there's some other stuff going on here too, right, Chloe? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the gender stuff that's going on within these pages and margins. And I do want to shout out and recommend, and we're going to talk about them throughout the episode, but our friend Lo was on a great episode with Davos Fingers, their 118th episode called Sphinxes, Dragons, and Darker Things. And they're doing a really great series where they're featuring friends, patrons, etc. that are interested in A Song of Ice and Fire or have some favorite things to highlight. And Lo goes into a lot of detail of kind of their love for the Sphinx's story and for some of these characters that exist in and between the lines and gender throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. So I'm sure we're going to reference a few things from Lo as we get into here today. Yes. And by think, we are. We are going to do that. (laughs) So let's dive into it. The chapter starts out with... uh, Food, you know, typical, typical. Molander tosses an apple back and f- forth, murmuring dragons. Alaris tells him to throw the apple, <laughs> prepping his bow and arrow to knock it down. And Rune, the youngest of them, says he should like to see a dragon. Well, Rune, maybe you should download the new app, Dracarys. <laughs> and you can also... <laughs> Um, 
My dragon became a juvenile dragon this week. Thanks. Thanks for asking. <laughs> yes. Aviana. It's about 60% to becoming an adult. <sighs> but Rune does want to see a dragon in Pate, says, and I should like to sleep with Rosie's arms around me. And I love that we start off with Old Town being so, I don't know, somewhat related to Lord of the Rings. As you good listeners know, Eliana and I are <laughs> fake fantasy girl fangirls, like fake fantasy fangirls. And we have not read The Ring Lord. The most Lord of the Rings I've read is The Lord of the Mood Rings, which is the album or the song Mood Ring by Lord. Ah. Um, that is the most, yeah, that's the most rings that I'm I've read about. I'm not familiar with that. Is that a, that's a real song? Oh it is a song. It's called yes, Mood Ring. Yes. It's not Lord of the Mood okay. Ring. But she's right. the Lord oh. of the Mood Ring. Yes, 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 yes. So that's, that's close. Right. It has nothing to do with Lord of the Rings. However, I've watched the movies yeah. at least three times and only slept through it twice. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd just like so, to say I've watched maybe the movies one and a half times and there's just obvious references. I also married a guy that likes Lord of the Rings. So thankfully we share that, right? Like he tells me things when I ask him about them. Uh, it's a very expansive literary analysis <laughs> that's not <laughs> happening. But you have the honey wine in Old Town, right? Versus the brandy wine in the Shire. Uh, and there's the most obvious reference to Rosie, right? Samwise is Rosie and here it's Pate. The tavern in Lord of the Rings, right? I, the Rosie works here, green dragon versus gold dragon going on for Rosie. I like the green dragon Lord of the Rings tavern. I think that's a cool reference. So I do uh, Rosie herself. I like that <clears throat> the Rosie reference, but if I, I've, I don't claim to be an expert on the Lord of the Rings, but I've dabbled in those magazines before. And so... At the end of them, uh, Rosie does marry Samwise. I don't think Pate is Samwise. And so that's what I think is really fun about this this reference to Rosie. Because it's very similar with being uh, a barmaid. Uh, and George obviously takes it a little another step fo- further there by selling her maidenhood for the, the gold dragon. But I, I definitely like the fact that, yeah, this may be Rosie, but... Pate sure as shit is not Samwise Gamgee. And so he thinks, he thinks, you know, everybody's the hero in their own story, but he's definitely not fitting that mold. Honestly, and we look at this and how it's encompassing A Feast for Crows and some of the central themes in A Feast for Crows, but I mean, looking at A Dance with Dragons, who does that remind you of? You're not the prince, Quentin. You're not, you know, (laughs) you're the frog, not the prince Mm -hmm. right now. That's really... A great mirror yeah. for the front of the book, Pate not being Samwise and Quentin also not being the hero of the story and dying via dragon flame. Huh. Poor guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Oops. Oh. Never heard of him. Uh, yeah, but it sounds it's, like you're uh, telling it, me it's that. It's interesting. Samwell Tarly is going to break up with Gilly and marry Rosie at the end of these books. That's what you just said, right? <laughs> that is exactly okay, what cool. I am saying. I, just to make sure. I am so glad you helped me elaborate that because Zach is going to be thrilled about my new theory. This is a tinfoil theory. (laughs) It is now, if it wasn't before. I did think for like half a second you were going to actually say that. Oh, really? Just putting this out there. I did is This is your show. I'm just here to help (laughs) you guys. Uh, There is one thing that I worked very, I worked a tremendously hard amount of time today to understand something that I think I understand that is definitely also kind of Lord of the Ringsy. Lord of the Mood Ringsy. The Riddler versus the Riddle. 
being related to the riddle of Strider from Lord of the Rings. Gandalf basically leaves Frodo a letter. Within the letter is a poem reminding Frodo to make sure that the Strider that he is to meet is the real Strider. And basically the poem is used for him to identify Aragorn in disguise. And then later Aragorn quotes the first two lines, not actually knowing the poem in the letter, uh, or is in the letter, I should say, and that confirms his identity. And later we have another reference where Bilbo recites the poem at the Council of Elrond, and Boromir is kind of doubtful of Aragorn's claim as the heir, and that's when, you know, that poem reinforces, yes, he's the heir. Um, So there's something interesting. I'll read the poem, very short. The riddle of Strider, all that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither, deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. Mm. So, I don't necessarily, I mean, the Sphinx being, like, not the important part, right? Like, the riddle isn't, what is the why for this all? What is the amusing why? And I don't know what it is, but the riddle of Strider has that kind of epicness in poetry that... I mean, it reminds me immediately of Jon Snow mm. also kind of being a part of a riddle of his own, for example, and some of these secret parentages going on, or Young Griff, or Daenerys, right, who all could come into plot with Old Town soon. So interesting, interesting little reference of the riddle versus Riddler in the Riddle of Strider. It is interesting. It is interesting. And also, you know, as you're saying, right, like people are just sort of coming out, right, that from the ashes of fire shall be woken. That does sound a little like, uh, in a way, a lot of these stories. They're just coming out of, popping out of nowhere, but not really. And that's what the chapter's about, yeah, right? Like with the dragons, with Alaris bringing, you know, kind of that opening to say, uh, continue talking about the dragons. I believe you. I also like that the riddle, as you mentioned, was used to reveal. Aragorn, and we are specifically, as you mentioned, talking about Alaris and the Sphinx, the one who does riddles. The riddle most easily correlates as this, surprise, I'm not who I say I am, look at me, but without actually saying it, having that extra allusion to it with the riddle itself. That's fun. I like that. I had, I I sent it to my husband, I was like, this sound true to you? Like, what I'm saying is not being made up right now. And he's, like, translated it. He's like, yeah, you did good. Good job. I'm like, yes. You did I don't know. It. I thought that was interesting. And I, I definitely think it's a reference because Old Town is just peppered with this high fantasy reference from George all over. Everything is very mythical and mystical. Yeah. Absolutely. Another reference, Alaris and Melander and the apple the apple of discord being thrown, opening up Old Town for all sorts hmm. of shenanigans and fuckery going on. True. Interesting. It is interesting. Obviously, fruits mean things, and f- fruits and stuff will come back in Doran's storyline, right? Related Dornish storyline. Uh, but here, I mean, we all know apples kind of stand in for knowledge because here we are at school magic school and you've got the biting into the apple and you have an aspect of that carnal knowledge as well right like pate is pate is trying to get not just knowledge at old town and doing a terrible job but carnal knowledge of rosie and (laughs) and uh pate bites into the coin right that same coin that again he hopes will buy him that carnal mm. knowledge and then he has his own uh, fall of man and by that i mean he he literally falls down on the ground because he died 
Damn, spoilers. I'm just kidding. We, we've read this series too many times. I don't know why I went for one apple and not the other, mm. right? Um, but I'm glad you're my other half and complete me on that. And I gotta say, I'm really sick of you comparing apples to oranges. Uh, hey! Hey. <laughs> Thanks for schooling us, Eliana. Oh, of course, of course. Did you know I'm actually no one? No one needs to know this about me and apples. Never mind. We don't have time for that. I don't. Now I just need to take a bite. Can you just say it? I'm I'm just allergic to raw apples. Um. Oh, that's right. You have told me this. They make my mouth itchy. Yeah, yeah. I am apologizing on behalf of Thank the you. universe for you, because that sucks. Not Apples even like a great. little caramel? Not a little... Damn. As lo- actually, allegedly, <laughs> if you put a, an apple in a microwave for 10 seconds, it breaks down enough of the protein that it wouldn't make my mouth itchy. Because I can, like, drink apple juice, right? I love apple pie, all these mm-hmm. things. Those That's are fine. That's cool. But anyway. At least you're not completely deprived. Exactly. Because I do yeah. like apple things. Well, and at least you're never going to cause the fall of mankind. Oh my god, that's so true. Hey. That's so true. Oh my god, that's so true. That's <laughs> uh, Pate thinks that Rosie will be his by tomorrow. He'll take her far away where no maesters could follow them. He'll go to the free cities. We get kind of an intro. Emma, the older of the serving wenches at the Quill and Tankard, was laughing through the room ahead and Rosie was her daughter. Fifteen freshly flowered Emma was selling her maidenhead for a golden dragon and Pate was saving up at the piggy bank. At this point, he thinks he'd be better off hatching a real dragon than saving up to make one. So I, I'm going to go a little off the rails, a little tinfoily here, just because it might be crazy sounding, but I get some serious Peter Baelish vibes yes. from that particular section, where, first of all, because we call him Creeper Baelish over, on our, uh, over at the Brotherhood, and there's just heavy possessive vibes the entire time from Pate. So, like, I'll let it be known now, I... Pate's a piece of shit. I really don't like Pate. Um, but for a lot of reasons, and I'm going to go over a couple of them real quick for this tinfoil theory. I think that he's the unmotivated Baelish because <laughs> he bitches and complains about not being able to afford things, but he's like, she's mine. I'm going to, she's gone. We're going wherever I want, whether we're going across the land here, whether we're going across the sea, she's mine. She has no choice in the matter. And then. Like, she's going to give a shit about you. Like, she got her her gold dragon. Like, be done with it. And, but he won't do anything better. Like, Baelish would go in and start, like, extorting people to make the money. And be like, here, here's five dragons. I'm going to take her with me now. Because I bought her as a slave. But it's not slavery because I'm Baelish. And, like, I just, he's just the the knockoff version of Peter Baelish. He's he's just a ripoff. Well, to be fair, he is 18. Right, so true. He is just becoming Baelish, <laughs> becoming Baelish, the new hit ba- series. <laughs> I mean, Peter got a um, head start. He started really young, right? Yeah. But there is a lot of what you're saying. Like, yes. there's a lot of that, and Eliana's going to go into it later. I know too. But there's a little bit of like, like Robert Baratheon's possessiveness over Liana. Yeah, right. Yeah. Liana never wanted him. Does Rosie even want you, dude? She gets this is her job. She gets paid. If she's nice to people at her job more than she would get paid if she was mean to people at her job. And it's something like 
God, I just remember hearing it from like a guy I worked with once in a warehouse that he was like, oh yeah, you know, those girls at Meyer, they like it when you flirt with them at the at the store and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, it's they their don't. job. They probably don't. Mm-mm, you're wrong. I mean, like they can choose, but Pape has a very built up vision in his head of what he thinks is happening here versus what's not. And that right. buying someone is like, you could just buy a person to love. Yeah. Yeah, actually, now that you put it like that, it, it does harken back a little bit to uh, some of the stuff that George explores in his short story, Beat House Man, of, yeah, you know, buying someone in that way and, and having them fulfill everything. And it, I mean, and, you know, her name, Rosie, there's a lot there's a lot built into there, right? Pate's kind of looking at her with these rosy colored glasses, if you will. Uh, I I actually kind of think that's something that's being played on, but not glasses necessarily, but that idea, that outlook, and he wants to abscond with her, and that makes me think of someone else who's associated with uh, with roses. That's... You you almost want to feel bad for him at the end, but you kind of deserved it. Like, you didn't... You didn't even know why you're biting the coin, you dumbass. Like, that's on you, bro. Like, yeah. shouldn't have done that, you know? And there's just so many characters that he's very much similar to, even shitty characters, not good people. But he's not a good version of yeah. them. For like, Chet. Ex- like, yes. for instance, he was the exact same role as Chet. Yes. But Chet at least had the the smarts to be like, yo, I've got a cushy here, and was pissed when Sam took that. This guy's like, yo, this sucks. Like, and don't get me wrong, some people just don't want to be wiping other dudes' asses. That's just how it goes. But yeah, you have it better than you think. And it's like you said, he's young. He does. He's been here for five years. He doesn't really know much else. But like, you, you, you're making the worst out of a of a pretty okay situation. You know, you're not applying yourself in school. Do more. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> I think that. I don't know. I, I feel both ways about it, and I think we're going to get into it later on, too, because I do see kind of some of the other bits of it of class of, like, you know, you, you'll 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 see as we go along, too, some of the class things that he runs into and some of those barriers. But I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely don't feel attached to Chet. I will put that out right now. I want you all to know that I'm not attached to Chet nor his boils of all of the prologue characters. Probably speaks to me. Oh, God. Him, he speaks to me probably in the lesser rungs, right? Like him and Varamir, they don't speak to me as people. You know, I'm sorry for them or whatever. Um, good luck. Or wait, they're dead fuck. So, you know, whatever. But <laughs> Well, technically, Varamir is not. Pate, I feel. Oh, Varamir's still alive in his. That's right. Technically. Shit. Technically. Spoilers. But, God, Eliana, I'm just reading these. It's a reread podcast. Uh, <laughs> Shit, I need to quit. <laughs> Pay, I do feel like, at least you feel bad for him, right? Like, I do feel a little sympathy for the sucker. See? No sympathy. I, I don't know. We're, we'll clash on this No, go later. ahead. Go we'll ahead. Clash Tell on me this about later. This is not clash. This is feast. We will feast on <laughs> this right, later. Right. God, God, sorry. We'll feast upon this later. But first, okay. Armin the Acolyte tells Rune he's too young for dragons, born too late. Armin is wearing his links, his pewter, tin, lead, and copper. The last dragon had died in King Aegon III's reign, at least the last dragon in Westeros. Alaris urges them to throw the damn apple again. There's this great note that Alaris is like really good looking and all the serving wenches dote on them the most and favor them over the others in the boy gang. And I love that because there's kind of this low-key feeling 
like, listen, even just, like, girl at a bar, like, you trust another person that's kind of, like, I don't know, androgynous or, like, genderqueer, or you could just tell blurs those lines in between, and they're, you know, not quite Armin or Molander. Like, absolutely. I, too, would prefer Alaris over Leo Tyrell. You know, I would dote on Alaris as well. I get it. This is a very relatable thing George has put in the text. Like, been the girl at the bar many times, and you levitate towards those folks. They're good folks. Yeah, absolutely agreed. I, I thought the exact same thing, but also I, I there's part of me that questions like, is Alaris actually that good looking? Which I mean probably. Alaris has some of those good genes going through. Um with a we know, we know Oberyn was very, very handsome and uh And those beautiful summer islanders, are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oberyn could pull also, as we all know. Um but also Alaris uh Probably because of the aspect of, you know, being genderqueer, etc. Probably actually treats the cervic wenches as people. And you know what? It doesn't, doesn't really matter what you look like to if you treat people like people. You know, as George says, when people are like, how do you write women so well? He's like, you know, I've always thought of women as people. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that's, that's the quote that uh, he likes to bust us out. Classic. So. That just gives more credence to the, the heritage. Because you... Oberyn's uh, just the epitome of of kind, you know, to anybody. There's no, I don't give a shit who you are. You're you're a person, and so of course, you know, his kid's gonna be the same way. And I, I absolutely agree with. I love that that point. The attracting people. You're just people are yeah. drawn to that kind of person. There's a confidence about yeah. them that they're just they they yes. you, you draw people to them. They have that it's a whole vibe. Yeah. Man. You just want to you want to chill with that. It is that though. Like it is the the charisma and the raw magnetism, right? Not just like an attraction physically, but like they are respectful and they also have a crazy good vibe. Like through this whole yeah. chapter, Alaris is the funniest, the most confident, the the person approaching this with the most ease. You definitely feel that. From from this chapter. And Alaris, like, comforts Pate quite a few times, so, like, Alaris shows, like, that empathy, mm-hmm. right? As you were saying, that's the charisma right. that Alaris has, and it comes from making pe- people feel at ease. I the Alaris. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, you. You could. I remember, yeah. I remember, uh, one night when, um, a friend of ours said you were the most charismatic person he has ever, <sighs> he's ever seen or met. Armin argues the last dragon in Westeros was the last dragon, and at Alaris's urging, finally throws the goddamn apple, which is caught mid-air by a golden wooded arrow with scarlet feathers. Another really good reference that I didn't notice till this slower reread: uh, the feathers of the Summer Isles on the arrows. Right, mm-hmm. that's another hint. Oh, it's Alaris slash Sorella. I thought that was great. Great little touch. We'll get a couple more of those little touches throughout. Yes, I remember you bringing this up also. It was it was a brilliant observation in the same chapter, so we're going to dig into it a little more. Uh, I I just want to say I love how fucking annoyed Alaris gets about the apple. She's like, can you just please fucking throw it already? Why are you still holding it? <laughs> um, but also, I, I like the way some of this is phrased right about the dying out of the dragons. They're very clear of the dragons that died out in Westeros were the last ones in the world, which shows that even though maybe the dragons supposedly came from Ashai, there are no more there. So it kind of uh, helps with that world building and puts those theories to rest a little and really goes to show why Daenerys' dragons are so special. And it is pointed that they're saying the dragons in Westeros that died out because it shows that they don't know because these dragons are now in Essos. Anyway. Oh, clever. 
Very clever. Uh-huh. Clever play on words there. Pate doesn't see the arrow hit, but hears the splash when it falls in the water, and Melander calls it a sweet hit, which makes Pate stop thinking about where he is and start thinking about Rosie. Them beautiful hazel eyes, them titties, dimples in her cheeks, the way her hair curls, the clean smell of her, the way she sometimes served barefoot. In fact, Pate's kind of a foot guy, so he starts talking about her feet in some detail. Uh, And he daydreams about buying them a donkey, taking turns, riding it as they wander Westeros. Yeah, he's got this really, like, flushed out thing here, but uh, I I agree, like... (laughs) Flushed out? Yeah. So it's now canon, right, that Pate created the little piggies playing on the toes in in Westeros, right? That's that's what happened there, right? Like, he came up with a little story for each toe. Oh my god, yeah. And so, like, he's... He straight up created the little piggies in, in Westeros. Like the pig Just, boy, yeah. Right. Pate the pig boy. Oh, I yeah. didn't realize that was so. foreplay. Um. <laughs> oh, Does footplay come with the one gold dragon? I have questions, George. <laughs> you called it out, and it's so true, and we should absolutely acknowledge it that, as we've been discussing, Pate is a feet guy, and uh, George really wanted to make sure that we knew that, right? Usually George... Uh, talks about other assets which he does here right he doesn't talk about her ass which i again i always think is so fascinating um but you know as we've been discussing about you know how pate's like he is the other side of that coin if you will golden dragon uh from chet and everything in this paragraph he it's about how much pate loves rosie and everything about her but the text is very i think intentionally questioning that and shows us that because not once do we ever actually see rosie a speak in this chapter i think and ever or ever speak to pate in this chapter at all it's all just like pate projecting his feelings onto rosie and assuming that she will love him just because he buys her maidenhead and like none of the descriptions of what he loves about rosie are at all about her as a person it's just physical descriptions about her and her feet and we see in a moment that pate has done a pretty bad job of making a place for himself at the citadel and his fantasies for his future haven't gone well and rosie isn't an object of love for him but an object of desire not for rosie herself but for pate to create a new idealized version of himself a future or purpose for him to desire you know where he is needed rather than pate putting in the work of figuring that out himself of who he is pate's just this empty vessel who doesn't know who he is which sets the tone for the rest of this book especially with the aria chapters um and as the series starts diving into the murkiness of identity well the aria stuff is so interesting right and I think there's a lot to bring in with the faceless men in this chapter, and I'm actually not very well versed in it. I had to do extra reading today, you know, pulled out the old T-waff, the old ass-waff, the old F and B. God, it all sounds a little dirty when you put it that way. Unleash the D! <laughs> Unleash it! Unleash it! But I-, I had to pull out some of that today just because I kind of wanted to ruminate on the faceless men for this episode because they're very much here. You might not see them or realize it till it's too late, like poor fucking Pate. But that whole idea of giving up the identity or, you know, who you are versus who you're not versus who you want to be really becomes big. Yeah, and my I would only argue that I think that it's 
we've been really heavily pushing that, that that's been a very prevalent, depending, of course, on whose story, uh, prevalent theme in especially Arya's. Uh, at this, even at this point, at the start of Feast, she's taken on seven, eight identities from, from various traveling situations. And Sansa's had a couple here and there. John's taken on the Night's Watchmen, the Wildling. So identity's a pretty heavy theme throughout the entire series. This is where they're bringing in the, the faceless men to really show why it's going that direction in some character arcs, but also, you know, to fuck with our heads because Martin loves <laughs> that. But I, uh, yeah, I love the, the thought of the just identity, especially going into Feast because we haven't gotten to explore that yet in this reread where we're really analyzing these things. And so to see it fully evolve now from where we're starting, even as early as the prologue, it's super exciting to see where it's going to be going. Yeah, absolutely. Especially those Arya chapters get really intense, you know, going blind. And all. I mean, this is the perfect chapter to kind of tell you something is up here something is up and something's about to get happen and even more than that something is not right as miss clovel would say lmao while meister ebros doesn't think highly of him pate knows how to leech a fever set a bone he could work again amongst the small folk maybe even learn to trim hair and be a barber that could be enough so long as he had rosie the terrace is torchlit, mist hanging in the night. Down river, the high tower beacon floats like a hazy orange moon. The alchemist should be here by now. Had something happened to him? Pate was used to bad luck. He'd never felt lucky to be old Archmaester Walgrave's helper, for example. Stuck overseeing the ravens with him, fetching his meals, sweeping his chambers, dressing him. There's something in that, just about how, like, Something, a lot of something with, like, Sam, for example, and looking at, like, I mean, the Nega Sam, right? Pate is, I'm going to agree with you here, Pate is the Nega Sam, you know, is really what I'm seeing it as. He, uh, uh, Sam who never, you know, looked at Gilly in a way of owning her, even when her culture says, if you steal her, she's yours, right? Uh, where here, he covets Rosie. He looks at her as if she is his, uh, even though he doesn't even have the fucking coin yet to say it. Whether or not that's an appropriate way to get a girlfriend or a wife, you know, uh, that's neither here nor there. Like, sh he doesn't even have that coin to do he's so. He's already with. admitted he will never get that that kind of money. Yeah, he's already grappling kind of with that. And, you know, pay, betraying uh, Walgrave. I mean, expo exploiting, kind of betraying him, you know, thinking this is his one chance to get out, as we'll talk about. It's uh, definitely the opposite of Sam, who just spent the last few months, well, who's about to spend, god, time, what is time, for us, the last few months. But Sam is about to linearly, in these chapters, spend months on the ship with Aemon, taking care of him, you know, doing stupid things for the one he, he loves, for Aemon, doing, like, dumb, wasting their money shit. But he's about right. to do all that in comparison to Pate, who was like, I'm gonna steal that key. Walgrave never did anything for me. I'm going to steal his key. Right. Yeah, and I think there's something that, uh, I think you said this earlier, Nate, about uh, that mirror to Chet, and we see that also, because Chet had that position, right? Also with Maester Aemon until, until Sam came and replaced him. And so there's a lot of those same echoes there, too. 
there's also something, it's not like quite one-to-one, but it also in a way reminds me a little bit of, you know, not just Nega Sam, but an idea of who John would be if Sam hadn't set that context for him and been like, the reason why you're a steward and doing all this stuff is because you're being trained for the role that you're going to have later on. And I mean, that's what Pate's being taught to do, right? To serve, to serve the realm. Right. It kind of sucks. And also, like you can see, he feels like it's a dead end, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit. Pate kind of thought he'd at least get his Black Iron Link for Ravencraft out of this, but it turns out Walgrave is unfortunately only an archmaester by courtesy now. He has kind of surpassed the time of being a great maester. And it's really sad. He soils his small clothes constantly. Acolytes find him weeping in the library, lost, unable to find his chambers. Not great. So sad. I don't know. Like That just made me so sad. And it's horrible. I don't know. People having dementia and Alzheimer's just makes me sad. And uh, it also, that loss of memory is something that we see come back with Eamon too, right? He's losing track of where he is. He's like, what what the fuck am I doing here? And then also losing track of his temporality. Yeah, I had gotten a little hung up on the sentence there in, in the book. And the way it was worded just had me thinking heavily on that. Uh, when he was lost in the library, Maester Gorman was sitting in his place beneath the Iron Mask. Mm. And I really couldn't, I it took me a while, I couldn't even understand what that meant in that context. What was he, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I couldn't understand what Martin was trying to have Pate say in that moment, or what was he alluding to here. And so I went and did some weird research and started, you know, <laughs> I went and watched Leonardo DiCaprio as the man in the Iron Mask. Interesting. And, amazing, amazing. Yeah, and so it gave me all the knowledge I needed, but it was kind of more of the illusion of, in my opinion, that he's he's clearly usurped the role that Warglaive held. And so he's serving as the man behind that mask. But similarly, it's the, you know, referring to the man in the iron mask, that's given to a, a high profiles uh, prisoner to help reduce their notoriety. And so it's almost the role that Warglaive is filling. He's kind of still that notorious person, but he's just an empty shell at this point, filling that, position as necessary and so yeah i was really annoyed by that and couldn't quite figure out what i what it meant and then i was like oh it's just because he's i get you never mind and then still watch that movie don't get me wrong it's a great detail though when you think about it especially his usage like i don't know it's hard sometimes especially when like writing outlines because i'm like this is probably important everything george says is important uh but I love that because even just from the look of it, right, like the iron mask, you could tell that says so much about Maester Gorman mm-hmm. within just a couple of words. Uh, right. and, and it is sad. Like you, you see a Walgrave is there to die. He has towers to fucking die in, right? Like that's what he has. And Pate doesn't give a shit about him. And, and to be fair, Pate doesn't have to necessarily give that much of a shit. I'm not saying make it your best friend like Eamon became for the little mini family on the road to Bravos and such, you know. Um, but at the same time, like, it's A little very... human decency would be yeah. nice. Yeah, and there's something interesting in that it's paired between Pate being like, I'm so used to having bad luck. And then it's like, how do you think Archmaester Walgrave feels? Like, he's tossed aside a, like, old used dead furniture and b also 
Um, there's something interesting in that, like, like you said, they're keeping him still, right, as an archmaester. They're telling people, yes, yes, he's an archmaester. And, I don't know, not to reference the bad show, but, like, there is something as, like, the old men of the Citadel are all these old, wizened dudes who won't listen to anyone else as we're learning. And they don't let certain people into their old man club. But, however, the problem with being an old man at the Citadel is that you're going to die someday. And all you have left is keeping older men like Walgrave as almost a sign of power. Like you said, an empty shell, right, of power. He's no longer this great archmaster that once stood. He can't give out accolades or award people's knowledge or merit. All he can do is get lost and, you know, have a pretty bad time at the Citadel unless he's with his birds. So that's an interesting state of also where the entire fucking nation of Westeros is at. Yeah. These are the great men, you know, and they're running out of great old men to put back in those jobs. Absolutely. We're seeing it we're seeing it across all of Westeros and, and it's interesting to see that within the microcosm of the Citadel. And so Maester Gorman has taken Walgrave's place. He's the same one who accused Pate of theft. Interesting. Gotta point out. That's funny, because Pate is stealing right now. Uh, it reminds me of just uh, putting it out there. Yeah, Tyrion being like, Well, if this is what you think of me, then I might as well become it. I might as well become the monster. Be the monster, Pate. <laughs> so Yeah, and justify your terrible actions. Um, um <laughs> Yeah, go all in. Yeah, go you know all what in. I mean? yeah. Go Steal all in. Steal it all. I mean, honestly, you should have just stolen more things if he was gonna do it, you know. Uh <laughs> me do crimes <laughs> right like that's where like if you're gonna be the shitty dude that you are i mean why not take the key and go steal golden dragons from right me? even sam oh. is gonna be taking some fancy fancy books right? like not just a key to give to someone else yeah how much money do you think they would buy like go in and steal lesser used copies of books that you know you have a handful of copies of you know, do some fucking, do some sneaky shit, Pate. Be That's smarter. That's the, the failed Peter Baelish part thing I was mentioning. Yeah. Like, yeah. Baelish would absolutely be like, yo, we have seven of those in stock, but nobody's reading any of them for the last 12 years. The, the card in the front says how long it's been since somebody checked that book out. And so he takes the other six and just sells them. He makes double the profit, replaces them. Like, it's a great system. Peter Baelish would thrive in Old Town. You're wasting yeah. opportunity, Pate. Like, yeah, resources. You could be yeah. making a gold a, a gold dragon a day. Man. Yeah. I mean, spoilers, the magician, so skip forward 10 seconds. But do you know how fucking hard they worked to be able to achieve this? Uh, Pate's just wasting it. Uh, beside the water, a nightingale sings, much sweeter than the ravens that love to scream. Oh, I'm sorry, Chloe, please do this part for me. The raven, the little raven voices. I just love your bird voice. Pay, 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 pay. Thank you. Uh, yeah, the ravens are screaming at him, and we got the big white borbs that are Walgrave's pride. Uh, Pig kind of wants to eat them when he dies, but he also is like, I think that the birds probably want it, would eat me if I died. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, I think there's an aspect there where the the Borbs kind of love him, right? Why else would they scream his name? Uh, I mean, there's probably many reasons, but the idea of each eating the other, it, there's something of that that I think kind of resurfaces in the next prologue chapter. But we can talk more about that next time. 
Perhaps it's a strong cider, which he hadn't come here to get fucked up, but Alaris was partying to celebrate their copper link and getting fucked up, so I guess we're getting fucked up now. Uh, but the nightingale then seems to sing, gold for iron, gold for iron, sorry, gold for iron, gold for iron, gold for iron, which was strange because that's what the stranger had said the night Rosie brought them together. Pate had demanded to know who he was, and the man said he was an alchemist that can change iron into gold. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. That's actually a little reversed. Pay attention to the order of words, Pate. Um, but again, the slipperiness of identity and there's this aspect of it that's kind of about the ability to change reality, to change what people are perceiving, um, and that being reality. Like, of course, the alchemist, I mean, that's what alchemy is, right? Like, change one thing into another, changing the iron into gold, but more so that this alchemist particularly can change who they are because they are a faceless man and they learn about glamours and all the other kinds of magic with the real faces and shit. It's a whole thing in this book, but it's also kind of reminiscent of the Blackfires and shows why the Pate prologue would also work for many of the other dance chapters. Uh, the rusted dragon sign at the crossroads in that washes up on the quiet aisle of a black dragon that is rusted and now turned red, which is what they are doing with Igin slash Fagon. And, and this aspect of the gold with it too, right? You're turning Igin into a red dragon, but you also have this association with the golden company. And besides that transformation of this person into another person, um, into another role. You also have, I think, that transformative power of gold, right? Of power, of wealth, and for one, you have the legacy of Tywin Lannister, who turns out does not shit gold hanging over this book. He gets mentioned, his death gets mentioned here, but also Illyrio's wealth, right? Uh, being able to, with all that gold, buy legitimacy for Aegon. Yeah, gold for iron is really, I don't know, I have a lot of thoughts on gold for iron. You bring up wealth, but when I think, I mean, for the basic of, of gold for iron, when I think gold for iron, to me, that's money for war, mm. right? Money for war is what I think. That's just like what the world is, right? I mean, whenever we need some money to be made up because we can't just print more, uh, there's war, right? There's always goods and money and resources to be found where war goes. Mm. And it also kind of reminds me, in a more exact way, of the free folk exchanging their weapons and their, their goods, all of their gold and different jewelry and different things, uh, up north at the wall with John and Stannis. Mm. Gold for iron. There's also, I think, the almost the funny part of it is that he's literally telling him he's going to die when you think of it as the the iron islanders where they're yeah you're paying the iron price iron mm. for gold mm -hmm. you're you're paying for your own death right now you're paying for your own assassination give me a gold i'll kill you you're done that's oh that's and great. so it's already yeah. the key and you get the gold rather right yeah that's a good actually that's yeah. another good one it's like yeah, it is equivalent that. exchange right all these transmutations it is yeah death for life and life for death and gold for iron yeah, only for Pate, all he get he only really buys death, I guess. <laughs> he didn't get anything. What a shit deal. And then the coin was in his hand, dancing across his knuckles, the soft yellow gold shining in the candlelight. On one side was a three-headed dragon, on the other, the head of some dead king. Gold for iron, Pate remembered. You won't do better, 
Do you want her? Do you love her? I love this passage because it reminds me of so many things. It reminds me of like Illyrio's rings in A Dance with Dragons. He's like got his rings in the light and as he's talking to Tyrion, uh, the light and we'll talk about this at some point because I think I have it in here as another reference today, but the light like shines on them as he's moving his fingers and it's just so luminous you can see it. And then the end of this actually reminds me of that language in the John chapter about Egret. Do you want her? Do you love her? It reminds me of it was wrong to love her, wrong to leave her, mm. kind of. Um, I don't know. There's language there that just reminds me, yeah, a lot of that, especially with the three-headed dragon on one side of the coin and some dead king or John's great, 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 whatever grandfather. Right. Yeah. And there's also something going on here with the burbs, right? With these borbs. And I have no answers at all. Like, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking very deeply on the white borbs versus the black. So it does seem like this white raven is being skin-changed, possibly, by Blood Raven, by Bran. I mean, who the fuck is... Maybe they're just saying gold for iron. But I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Also, I kind of forget that until now, uh, with the Black Ravens being kept separate, again, as we talked about during our syllabus earlier, the Black Ravens are kept in the Ravenry, right? And the Ravenry is very northy. Uh, there's a weirwood in there still. There are vines and, and weirwood leaves and everything everywhere. And it's kind of segregated in its own tower. And, and it's very, it's like very old school. And in the Age of Heroes, supposedly it was a stronghold of a pirate lord who picked off ships as they came down river. You know, there's someone that's definitely connected in a way to Bloodraven and Bran that I think we're going to hear a lot more of in The Winds of Winter. Wears an eye patch, kind of piratey. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name's Euron Greyjoy. Hmm. I definitely feel like with the whole theme of like the birds and education and this great fucking citadel of knowledge and power sitting on books about Valyria and all the secrets of the world and magic that these maesters won't give away, isn't it kind of perfect that Euron might hijack the citadel and these birds and turn knowledge into an actual fortress of evil, and who knows, maybe like poison the weirwood and shit. I don't know. Just feels like to me, between the birds and the possibility of these uh, ravens being around and being skin changed, Blood Raven may just have a little in over here. I feel like Euron would be crazy enough because he's he's the one that was claiming that he was throwing dragon eggs into the ocean because fuck it like you know it'd be fun just chucking dragon eggs into the ocean so he seems like the kind of asshole that'd walk into a big library and be like you know what sounds cool fire lots of it right now just because and so it it almost seems like he he would would align with the faceless men if the faceless men didn't want that knowledge before Euron burns it all down. And so I almost wonder if they'll think it'll be more of a hostage situation with mm -hmm. him there than so much as the, I mean, I suppose a, de a defendable fortress of just, no, I'm going to burn down everything you've ever learned, thought you've learned or intended to learn sucks to be you. But I, I didn't think about him getting into into Old Town like that. Like, is it, I always kind of pictured it as a siege. I'm coming in and just, we're just going to blow shit up in here and knock buildings down. But 
Euron in there is scary because, you know, he's summoning Cthulhu soon anyway. And so to have the additional knowledge from what's being stored at the Citadel, that's horrifying. That's pretty scary stuff. Yeah, and there is there, there's a bunch of the theory, right, that he may have paid the faceless men to kill Balin with a dragon egg. Mm-hmm. I know that's right. a big theory that's been around for a long time. I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know if I'm in or out on it, but it's interesting and could explain, you know, the casual, I threw it in the sea because I'm a badass. Like, no, right. bitch, you turned your dragon egg, I guess dragon, Pate gets a dragon, but Euron yeah. gets a dragon <laughs> egg. You threw it away for that? Interesting. That could be interesting. He turned it into gold. He traded it for gold. I feel like that's a shitty trade. Because, again, <laughs> if Littlefinger had a dragon egg... <laughs> i mean the other part of it is the high towers right they have to come back they have to be a little relevant and i do think like the high tower versus the citadel is the ultimate from the top of the rooftop magic fight let's be real that sounds cool yeah. That sounds sick. Just wizards up on top of the towers, just lightning bolts at each other. And yeah. Like, hell yes. High tower. Fuck yeah. I'm on board. Pate had told the man that he was no thief. He was a novice of the Citadel. The alchemist said he would return in three days woo, with his dragon uh, if he changed his mind. And now Pate was here, waiting, uncertain, surrounded by his motley of friends. It would have been suspicious if he didn't join his friends, so he just drank and drank. Mood. Again, Pate has a weak sense of self, and I, I don't mean that insultingly, but I mean like he doesn't have a strong grasp of on his identity, and he defines himself as not a thief, and his identity changes in this chapter, and eventually, to an extent, right, he kills that identity. Um and 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 he also dies. You know, you say that, but again, you have to know your name. True. Right? Theon Greyjoy taught us that. Theon coming back from from Reek and Pate unfortunately dies and does not get a chance to come back from from anything at all yet i mean we will at the end of the book but (laughs) (laughs) for 600 years the quill and tankard stood on its island in the honeywine never shutting its doors pate thinks it could stand another 600 (laughs) euron's gonna light that shit down ain't he uh selling wine ale and cider to all who visit I just, I'm sorry, I just love, I just love the name Quill and Tankard and want to go to a bar called the Quill and Tankard. It is an amazing name. I just, yeah, I just love it. It sounds good. Zach and I regularly rip off a, a, a swath for their names for our D&D games. Oh, really? So, like, yeah, we have, I, I, we're currently running through the Hagsmire ourselves right now, and that's pretty scary. But yeah, all sorts of cool, cool locations that our friends who don't actually know anything about. Did you know there's people that don't know about this stuff at all? Like, at all? We learned this today it's when wild. someone slid into one of our friend's DMs. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. It's crazy. Didn't know anything. Us, but... Yeah, so we have these nice, great allusions to the series, and they're right over their heads, so that's fun. Yeah, you, you guys just are just brilliant. straight from George. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're just D&D brilliant. He'd respect that, I think. Yeah. I think he'd respect that, you know? I mean, Carcosa, you know, all of his We're stuff. We're just borrowing yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, everything's borrowed, that's for exactly. sure. Exactly, exactly. Are you a thief? <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> yes. So... Old Town is not the world, declares Molander, who is a knight's son. He's drunk as a skunk. Uh, his father had also died in the Blackwater, which is pretty sad. And ever since then, Molander's just always been drunk. 
So that's really sad. The War of the Five Kings has reached even Old Town is uh, what this uh, section's about. Though Archmaester Benedict claims, you know, there never really was, uh, well, actually, a War of the Five Kings. Uh, that's what he sounds like. Well, actually. But um, I, I like Mollinger's character. I hope we see more of him. We didn't in Sam's final chapter. There's a lot of, I think, echoes of him that works for Bran and Tyrion's chapters and even Jaime's uh, with his disability preventing him from becoming a knight and so going down this path right as a maester but uh, we also have a great example of the grief and the personal price that the war has taken from him and what how that's sort of permeated across Westeros now something you just said too about the war of the five kings uh, reaching old town right and that denial of information that archmaester benedict is like there was never a war that misinformation from the Citadel, going back to those old dudes just sitting there and holding on to their power and doing nothing. Man. Yeah. There is no war in Bossing Say. Oh my god, exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Melinda says his father said the world was bigger than any lord's castle. Dragons must be the least of things found out east. Again, agree. Melinda is the most goddamn adjusted character in this chapter. Armin argues these are merely sailors' tales, but Mullinder disagrees. When oarsmen all tell the same tale, it probably means it's true. It's a good... I use that in life. Armin thinks the tales all differ. Dragons in Ashai, Karth, Marine, Dothraki dragons, dragons freeing slaves. Mullinder argues only in details. All of them speak of dragons and a beautiful queen. Alaris has two more arrows to spend, so Mullinder throws them. One is wormy. Feels like a metaphor. If you cut a worm in two, you make two worms, the acolyte informed them. If only it worked that way with apples, no one would ever need go hungry, said Alaris with one of his soft smiles. The sphinx was always smiling, as if he knew some secret jape. It gave him a wicked look that went well with his pointed chin, widow's peak, and dense mat of close-cropped jet-black curls. Alaris would make a maester. I really latched onto the worm stuff there eating worms uh in particular because oh. we know that uh our little friend aria mm, pulls the connection. worm out of the yes. kindly man's yeah. face and eats that and so i just really liked the that connection there between them talking about the worms and they seem to be kind of popping up in particular locations in their their references and so i just wanted to draw attention to that in particular but of course, I'm. I also adore Alaris, so I'm happy to talk about Alaris anytime. <laughs> no, I love that. I didn't think about that at all. Yeah. The worminess, and, and of course, um, not to traumatize you so close to it, but you know, you're at the red wedding, right? And who is a little wormy that comes back from after that? <laughs> Miss Cat Stark, right? She comes back a little wormy in some aspects, so interesting and you know the quote itself does remind me too of eliana's favorite quote lady alessandra your favorite quote about onions right about cutting the rot out uh it's not perfect but it comes back to that gold for iron and life for death kind of idea right that only making two things by killing something or only death paying for life mm. And I don't know, interesting that you can cut a worm in two, a worm coming out of the apple. Like, don't throw the apple away. There's still life coming from that apple. You might not see it, but the worm is useful and the worm can be given, you know, 
a second thing. I don't know. I thought that was interesting beyond just like confirming Sorella is Alaris, right? That's another right. reason that exists. Yeah. And I'll, I don't know. There's also something else going on, right? Um, this is where I'm going to defend Pate, you know, just a tiny bit. So don't get upset here, Nate. But Pate says, like, like you mentioned, Elia, the attitude of his too, that possessiveness earlier and like kind of projecting his wishes onto things. He immediately thinks Alaris would make a maester. Like, you know, yes. he's like, of course, Alaris with Alaris's perfect hair and perfect everything is going to make a fucking maester. Um, which it is class commentary, right? Like Pate grew up lowborn. Uh, he's struggling to get his chain filled out. He has tried a couple times to do what kind of testing he needed to do to get at least the links that he thinks he could get. And now, even though he's been trying and can't get anything done, he's resorting to petty crime, mm-hmm. right? To be able to get out of the Citadel because he feels like he's at a dead end. That's a mood. Maybe I'll go to petty crime next. But, um... Alaris is like, even if we don't know who Alaris is and where Alaris is from and who Alaris's father or mother might be. And yes, like if it is Sorella, definitely still a bastard and still, you know, deals with a little bit differently uh, social classes. But at the same time, was raised like a highborn, speaks like a highborn, has a better education, you know, uh, of being of Dorne, where bastards are also more accepted than anywhere else in the nation. Uh, has an advantage to Pate. Like, I will say, Alaris does have an advantage. Uh, doesn't in all aspects of life, uh, as we know, but in some aspects. So, I don't know. I feel kind of of both worlds on it. Like, yes, Pate is being very pathetic and should be more resourceful, right, <laughs> with what he's got. But at the same time, I do feel bad for the sucker. Absolutely, absolutely. I agree with everything that you said, and it's not just it's not just any sort of like class that's helping out there, right? Like Alaris was likely literate from an earlier age, and that makes a difference in terms of how mm-hmm. you're able to uh, process that information and read, right? Uh, as opposed to Pate, we don't know when Pate started learning to read, and it's not just like any highborn education. It's Alaris's father, if Alaris is uh, Oberyn's yeah. child. Oberyn also probably could have passed down some knowledge because Oberyn was briefly in the Citadel as an acolyte and can be like, hey, you know what? Here's some interesting stuff that I learned at the Citadel that you can also know. So that's a little bit of a, you know, it's that early college credit. That's that AP course, you know? (laughs) Here's how we can sneak you in also, darling. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I I, I just want to be a little fair to Pate that no... It's probably not right, because also, here's the other thing. Like, Alaris is a hard worker, to be fair. Like, it's not like Alaris is getting there without hard work. And Pate should not compare himself to Alaris because of that, right? Like, doesn't have those opportunities. Alaris had forged, like, three links already within a year, and Pate is going on zero. He has zero for his five years at the Citadel. Uh, Rune and Melander have them, right? Pate arrived at 13 at the Citadel and he thought he was ready, got turned down. Maester Valen was like, nope, I'm a dick. He uh, earned his nickname Vinegar Valen because he did not let Pate fulfill his heavenly knowledge and get that link. And then later, tries again, goes to Maester Ebros. Maester Ebros's sighs are just as painful as Vinegar Valen's barbs. 
That's why I dropped out of college, man. I wasn't connecting with those teachers. You know, I dropped out of college hard as fuck. Fuck those teachers. Yeah. You should have just gone to the Citadel, Chloe. Um, Maybe not, is what I'm saying. Are you listening to this? That's true. Well, if you had had gotten Marwin as a teacher, right, or... uh, I would have done a lot of acid. You're right. Yeah, exactly. I would have done you would have so passed. You would have passed that class. <laughs> you been like, listen, listen, Marvin. I have a thesis on speed racer. <laughs> like, what link does Marwin have uh, jurisdiction over? Drugs? Is yeah. that the link that he can give out? Jesus. Yeah. Um. But I mean, like, you know, Pate's Pate's kind of again that Chet thing, right? Like of the class and literacy etc chet was like oh i guess i can't take care of the the stuff anymore because i didn't get the education sam did but anyway yeah so meanwhile alaris is trading one more apple for knowledge with molander promising to tell them what they know of dragons and alaris purposefully misses the shot because Alaris is very cool and suave like that, and Rune calls him out on it, and Alaris says, it's because the day you make them all is the day you stop improving. And I'm like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you, senpai. Um. (laughs) So I think that that line specifically goes to show why uh, Pate's so wrong in Mm. that, like, sarcasm about about Alaris, because he clearly forces himself to improve by missing that last shot, regardless of whether he's actually trying or not. Mm. And so it's that that will and desire to improve. Like, Alaris is a hard-ass worker. He's gotten three links in this past year. Like, don't downplay that, Pate, just because you don't want to put in the initiative. Yeah. <laughs> he's busting his ass over there. He's practicing with that bow every day. Yeah, he looks slim and slender, because they're working out every damn day. He's probably up running in the morning. Like, get off. Don't sit there and give him shit. I also think it's funny that uh, he said that he'll be a maester when Oberon, Oberon left. He And so well, who's to say that Alaris isn't just here for fun? Yo, this, is, this sounds like some cool classes. I'm going to go crash these courses, and then I'm dipping out when I'm done, once I've got all the links I want. But I ain't be no maester. Like, I've got summer islands to visit. I've got apples to shoot all over the world. Like, I can't just be stuck in Old Town or in one city maestering. Maybe Alaris is going to book it and go do their own thing. It, it does remind me almost of, like, Ned uh, in a weird way hmm. with his, you know, the only time a man can be brave is when he's afraid. And it's kind of one of those catch 22 is like the only time you can you know stop improving is when you stop trying to improve every day you know if you make them all you're not improving it's just got one of those kind of monikers those kind of like catchphrases of thrones are you saying alaris is toxic positivity <laughs> we get kind of a, a look at alaris's bow it's carved from golden heart which is a rare and fabled wood from the summer isles pate had tried and failed to bend it once before we talked a little bit about this in the Sam chapters, right? Because if you remember, on the boat, the Summer Islanders had golden heart bows and arrows. So again, not just the scarlet feathers in the arrows, mm. but the golden heart. Um, very exciting. And if that isn't obvious enough, the next passage is everything. It is all of the secrets of Alaris in one, one little passage. It's a very beautiful description, and we have to read through it. 
The Sphinx looks slight, but there's strength in those slim arms, he reflected, as Alaris threw a leg across the bench and reached for his wine cup. The dragon has three heads, he announced in his soft Dornish drawl. Is this a riddle? Rune wanted to know. Sphinxes always speak in riddles in the tales. No riddle. Alaris sipped his wine. The rest of them were quaffing tankards of the fearsomely strong cider that the quill and tankard was renowned for, but he preferred the strange, sweet wines of his mother's country. Even in old town, such wines did not come cheap. It had been Lazy Leo who dubbed Alaris the Sphinx. A sphinx is a bit of this, a bit of that, a human face, the body of a lion, the wings of a hawk. Alaris was the same. His father was a Dornishman, his mother a black-skinned summer islander. His own skin was dark as teak, and like the green marble sphinxes that flanked the citadel's main gate, Alaris had eyes of onyx. I love that. I love that. That's such a nice, it's such a beautiful description. I wish... I wish we had Alaris. I love Alaris manspreading in this moment. Yeah, I also do love Alaris manspreading. Uh, as someone who attended the super manspreader event over at the right, Brotherhood right. Without Manners, no manspreading at that podcast. But <laughs> right, right. You know, this chapter is truly not about Pate. Sorry to that I, man. I think we all need to accept that. Yeah, sorry about that, man. But this is the Alaris POV. I mean, this is really... It's not, but it, it is. And I love this beautiful introduction to Alaris. Quite obviously, Oberyn's child. If the feathers in the Summer Island wasn't enough, this is this is great. Like, this is like, really, George is in there, and he's like, I'm just gonna really nail home these details until you get it. And the Sphinx, like, such an obvious thing, but there's something really interesting happening here that... Grecian and Egyptian sphinxes are different, right, in lore. The combination of the lion's body and human head in Egyptian lore is strength and intelligence. The anthrosphinx, uh, the sphinx is seen as a male body, benevolent but still fierce like a Greek sphinx, but seen more as a guardian figure, protector of the pyramids, of riches, of power, of knowledge. But then in Greek lore, the Sphinx is a lot more aggressive in some aspects, has the head of a woman, the haunches of a lion, and the wings of a bird, and often symbolizes brutality, mystery, seen as enigmas, you know, killing and eating those who can't answer her riddle, Hmm. like an Oedipus. So I think there's something really cool about, you know, Egyptian Sphinxes being kind of male-presenting, while Grecian Sphinxes are female-presenting, because it actually is, like, perfect for kind of that mix of gender, right, that Alaris is between those lines and functioning between. And I don't know, there's something cool about both of the Sphinxes and all of the Sphinxes and the Sphinx and the Riddle. I didn't know that um, distinction between the Egyptian and the Greek Sphinxes. So that is really interesting. And uh, as you said, right, how it plays into gender. And how it plays into the Sphinxes at the front of the Citadel and Mm, them being representative, right, of of both of that with the male and the female face, but also here for for someone like Alaris who's able to go there. I mean, my God, I hope by the end of this series, the Citadel is open to anyone, if it exists. If it exists. It's a big, it's a big if. It's a big if. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Euron's gunning for it, man. I don't think he paid a, a deposit on that place. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that guy's going to trash Old Town. <laughs> the Citadel has no Yo, insurance. But- I was going to say, Garmin better get a policy out quick. (sighs) New business opportunity. You you spoke earlier about 
at the top of this episode um, about our friend Lo, who has done a lot of really great thinking and analysis about Alaris, and uh, some of which they sent to us in an email. But um, a, a lot of you can probably get the same thoughts or a similar uh, line of thinking in Lo's email, Lo's essay about Alaris, which we will also link besides the episode that they did with Davos Fingers. And in this essay, Lo talks about the Sphinx also as a representation of queerness when it comes to gender and Susan Stryker's reclamation of the image of the Sphinx and the monstrosity that's usually attributed to it. Um, and that's also attributed to people who break from the gender binary and, and from especially their assigned gender. And Lo discusses how not only does this relate to Alaris's gender, but uh, race, right, and the racial social othering of Alaris, right, that does get brought up quite a few times of um, Alaris's race. And I, I would add that the text tells us that Leo specifically calls Alaris the Sphinx because of their race, right? Um, and not just because, you know, Lo talks about uh, the Sphinx in term and that othering in terms of blackness, but also specifically Alaris as an interracial slash mixed ethnicity character. And Outside of A Song of Ice and Fire, in a lot of stories and media, children who are born of mixed ethnicity or nationality, including race, are seen as monstrous or bad luck. You have terms like half-breed or half-blood that speak to that monstrosity, but also that uh, give a sense of dehumanization. And that manifests also a little differently, right? Yeah, that comes up in fantasy series, and you'll probably see them in tabletop role-playing games too becomes a very literal thing this idea of being a half-blood half half-breed right where you'll have characters who are called that and that are mixed race in terms of like dragonborns or mixed with dragonborns or druids or elves or like all these other um fantasy races so interesting stuff i'd argue we see a little of that with like you know, the actual dragon lords in series too, right? When they start mixing True. with other houses True. and starting to kind of marry out. It's not exact, but I mean, Valyrian blood purity is a huge thing in this story. Yep. Right? Yep. And kind of keeping the magic, keeping it within our walls, our Targaryen walls, or our citadel walls here. And they did have Valyrian sphinxes, right? And they have the dragon wings um, on their little statues instead. Yeah, I love that. I do love that. They're cute. I don't care about the Valyrians, but I like their statues. <sighs> but it's real pretty there, you know? And ruined. <laughs> it's real pretty there, but, uh, you know, also on fire. But so I wouldn't take so a vacation the Citadel, there. The Citadel will also be on fire, too. It's like it's all the same. Everything's... Listen, you guys, you better get your trips in now before global climate change truly takes hold, because <laughs> Westeros next year? I don't know. I don't know. Mm, it's going to uh, be a little warm little hot you know 97 here today i mean imagine what it's gonna be like at the citadel when Euron is literally putting flame and fucking cthulhu down upon it and the citadel you got king's landing is gonna be all up in flames at some point in the future as well so just burning from all ends it's it's not looking good Winterfell, nope, Winterfell burned down too. They're rebuilding. The others are just trying to help. They're oh my god you're right they're here to fix Global warming. See, they're Westeros' firemen. Oh they're my just, God. they got the alarm stinging up there. They're just sliding down their pole. They're like, who put this wall here? Yeah. We can't put out your fire until 
Maybe subverting tropes. Maybe George is thinking the opposite, right? Yeah, he's trying to subvert it. He's like, instead of fire, what if it was ice that attacked them? (laughs) Armin argues no dragon has ever had three heads. Only the heraldry did, and the Targaryens are all dead. And Alaris is like, no, the Beggar King had a sister. And Rune thought her head had been smashed against the wall, but Alaris is like, no, that was Prince Rhaegar's son, Aegon. You're speaking of Rhaegar's sister, Daenerys. Not that I know anything about the Highborns or their life, and I don't care. That right there is like an Elaine Stone, John yeah. reveal, right? When she's telling Miranda Royce, oh, Jon Snow, the bastard that I know from, I mean, uh, yeah. that's, a, that's a pretty big reveal. Yeah, yeah. Um, Melander does remember Daenerys' nickname. Stormborn, and he lifts his tankard, cheersing to her, asks where Rosie is, saying, Our rightful queen needs another round of cider. And Armin is real, he's a little upset. He's like, You got, you can't say shit like that, man. Not here in public. You know, these are treasonous words. The spider has ears everywhere. It is kind of treasonous, but I mean, I guess Viserys wasn't wrong. You know, broken clocks right twice a day. They do still toast to the Targaryens in some places. Uh, uh, but it's funny that's shown here as a kind of like a drunken joke. Yeah. Also funny that he's like the spider has ears everywhere, you know, regarding Varys when Varys is supporting Aegon. Oh uh, yeah. So true, them true, true. toasting Daenerys, yeah, is kinda like a he doesn't know it yet, lol. But <laughs> he has no clue. But actually, yeah, you should shut the fuck up because the spider might be like, Oh, Danny has supporters in Old Town. We better exact our plans faster. Yeah, he's probably like, Varys is probably like, oh, this is good for us, you know, we're teaming up with Daenerys, and then that all blows up too. Exciting, exciting. Until it blows up again. (laughs) And again. Melander tries to argue. They're interrupted by lazy Leo Tyrell, who calls Melander a traitor. He's draped in satin, striped in green and gold, with a black half cape, pinned by a jade rose. Apparently he's had a little red wine. Because it's dribbled down his outfit, been there, done that. That's why I try not to wear light colors. Yep. Melander's not not having it, though, today. He's like, I'm not having it from Leo Tyrell. Go the fuck away. Armin is kind of like, what are you doing here? I thought you were confined to the Citadel for three days. And Leo's like, buy me a drink, hot frog, to Melander, his cute little nickname for him. Uh, a cup of Arbor Gold, and he'll not mention this toast to his father. Leo, of course, has a Tyrell father, and he had lost his last stag on supper after some light gambling over at the Checkered Hazard. I don't know that I'd go hang out there, but it was a decadent supper compared to their mutton. Leo turns to Alaris, trying to ingratiate himself with some, you know, moderate to light racism against the Dornish and the Summer Islanders. Alaris politely declines this, all of this, especially buying Leo a drink, and Leo doesn't really like that at all. Yeah. Very strange. Bold, bold strategy there, Leo. And I mean, it, it does seem to an extent, is Leo perhaps threatened by Alaris's popularity, both amongst the other novices, because people actually like Alaris, and they're like, Alaris is a chill person, uh, but also amongst the tavern girls, right? Um, and you have Leo kind of feeling threatened in terms of his masculinity and tied to that, his power socially. But there's also a bit of that economically. Uh, not that I think Leo is really that concerned, but he kind of, because he's denied that drink. And that's not how it should be, right? For the son of a Tyrell. People should be falling over themselves to be, like, helping him out. So the the light racism, as you will, uh, functions to an extent as Leo attacking 
therefore Alaris's masculinity and tied to that, therefore the humanity, especially because Westeros as this very extremist patriarchal society um, in which only men and especially masculine men are given that path to humanity, uh, citizenship, if you will, but not exactly citizenship. We're not there yet in terms of political theory, but in an attempt to reassert power, but no one's having it. They're all like, I don't know, Leo, you're a huge dick and I don't want to hang out with you. <laughs> He's a bully. He's absolutely yeah. a bully, but I'm not very good also, at it. <laughs> I mean, again, you can see exactly where that breakdown is. Like he's one of how many Tyrells. Yeah. He's nowhere near the fucking line of succession. He has no keep. He has no nothing to speak of. He's out here begging his buddies that aren't even his buddies because they hate yeah. him because he's a racist prick. They're like, "You're a dick. You're a bully. We're not buying you a drink." And he's out here begging them to buy him a drink. But yeah, I do like the negging approach. I think it's really good. I think it's uh, he should keep trying that one out and we'll see how it goes. We do get great one-liners out of him, though, to be fair. I'll yeah. give him that. I was just really stuck on the whole he was supposed to be confined to the Citadel. Yeah. You think, you think there's any chance that this is the alchemist in disguise taking on his face for now and just kind of just in case Pate didn't do what he needed he's keeping an eye on him watching things going on i mean i I don't think that there's any kind of confirmation one way or the other whether a face can be taken if the person is still alive or not but he came in he had some wine dribbled on him so it could be an excuse if the faceless man knocked him out said he's unconscious up there he doesn't remember well they saw that he was already drinking before he even showed up to the Mm. bar and he was down at the other tavern drinking before as well so it just seems like the elaborate kind of ploy that they might involve so i suppose that's my tin tin foil for the for the episode here is that this isn't Leo. Maybe this is actually the alchemist. Just keep it a quick eye. So maybe we should watch it and see how far, how much time elapses from the time Leo leaves to how long Pate sits here waiting for the dawn and see if there's enough time for a faceless man to go and swap back over to the alchemist persona. That's kind of fun. Yeah. I don't know if it's true, but like it is fun. They can like, use I'd a like glamour. That. Yeah, because that- like. They can use a glamour. And yeah, they can't, it can be a you can't, I think, take the face till they're dead. But thankfully, they're all drunk. So it's easier to use a glamour when everyone's drunk. Yeah. That's a fun-ass tinfoil. I really like that. Because, like, you really wouldn't think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know why he's confined. We never learn. Yeah. And right. the next yeah. time, it's him staring into the glass candle. And it's kind of funny. Yeah. Maybe it's more of a herring, too. Like, maybe this is supposed to stand out. Right? Like, now that you say it, I'm like... That three-day confinement, it's kind of like, even just in plot, it's an in-plot for the moment kind of red herring for them. That they're like, well, you're not supposed to be here. And it's like someone who wasn't supposed to be there. And then the real person who showed up wasn't, right. but maybe, like mm-hmm. for dramatic tension and effect, maybe we can just assume he was confined from already gambling and drinking and getting caught doing it or something. I don't know. Who cares? They seem to have more Detention. free time, but... Yeah, who knows why, but... They keep telling us that you're a racist asshole when you're out there, so if you could just stay here for a few nights and lay low. (laughs) Be less of a prick for once in your life. Yeah. The only other time we see him is outside of Marwyn's chambers, right? Leo is staring into the candle, and Alaris is like, are you searching for destiny or death? And he's like, naked woman. And then he leaves. Like, that's it. Like, that's the only other interaction we have. So this interaction with Leo and getting kind of this, you know, raw 
jerk compared to when we see him next. He's very different in the next one. And in the next one, we know that Pate is actually the alchemist, which is actually Jockin. So that's interesting, too. I think that's a very... Who knows? So once Leo's done handling rejection like a totally normal, well-adjusted adult, <laughs> he turns to Pate, calls him dirty, and Pate comes to you know back to the front for a moment. He's thinking about landing his tanker in Leo's mouth. He's like, I could be the hero of a thousand ribald stories. And he thinks about how uh, you know he could be a good-hearted, empty-headed lout who would best the fat lordlings and haughty knights and pompous septons. Uh, the tales, of course, of spotted Pate. Right, he had been named for a hero of past of this boy who would, you know, sit on a lord's high seat or bed some knight's daughter, all to do the right thing, you know, dunk the lunk basically. But this these are all just stories, and in the real world, pig boys don't fare so well. Sometimes he thought his mother must have hated him to name him after Pate. He should have done it. I think everyone would have backed him up. I don't think he would have gotten in trouble if he had hit Leo. Well, I yeah. do. Really? Within the Citadel? I don't know. They'd probably confine him to the Citadel for three days and then not watch him so that he can go to the Quill and Tankard and yeah. drink anyway. That's true. You're making great points, guys. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad I have you two to sober me. I can have a Pate and Leo breakfast club. Alaris, for obvious reasons, does not take so well to Leo's shithead racism. And they tell Leo to apologize and then... He and that Leo shames his house with every word he says, and he also shames the Citadel. How dare you do that to our school, our Ivy League school? And Leo, however, asks for wine throughout all of this, shamelessly with no shame. And I'm just like, I don't know, it's Leo, sorry, not sorry, Tyrell. Just keeps asking. He's like, okay, so you're going to buy me wine now? <laughs> to shut me up? He literally is like, oh, to shut me up, you're going to pour wine down my mouth? Cool. Cool. That's me. Minus uh. the shitty racism, but like, that's me. Poor wine. wine. Yeah. What do you say? Huh? How about wine. it? I do appreciate, too, that he's asking for Arbor Gold, which is like, come on, man, read the room. No one wants that shit right now. And also, like, you're just drinking of your own. Is there something there also with the gold for iron, Arbor Gold? Maybe. At the same time, in the next few minutes here, he corroborates everything. And he's like, ah, oh, well, unfortunately, Alaris is right, by the way. I hate his guts, but he is right. Like, there are dragons, you <laughs> silly simpletons. Um, and, and even though he's drinking... Arbor, or he wants Arbor Gold. Because he can't get the Arbor Gold, does that mean he's telling the truth? I don't know. I mean, I mean, we know he is and that we know that there are dragons. There's that. Right, I just we mean know. the yeah, because yeah. part. Like, because, yeah. I don't know what that means, but yeah. he wants it and can't have it. So, guess he has to have the truth tonight instead. Melander threatens his tongue out, and Leo then says the magic words, If you take my tongue out, how can I tell you about dragons? So yes, he corroborates Alaris' story. Danny's alive. She has three dragons. Every man sailing within 100 leagues of Karth has seen or is speaking of them. Marwyn the mage was even inclined to believe them, he mentions. And Armin and Rune immediately are like, Marwyn is unsound, unhinged. All the other macers say so. And Leo says, one of my favorite little lines, The sea is wet, the sun is warm, and the menagerie hates the mastiff. I love that line. I don't know. I just really like it. He's got good lines for a huge asshole, you know? <sighs> He's such a prick that his one-liners are hysterical. Like, <laughs> really good. Really good. George is having fun. 
Yes, he's having fun, but also Leo is being a little bitch. And Pete does agree, though. Marwin has much more bite about him, and he's not like the other maesters. Uh, he keeps company with sex workers, hedge wizards, hairy Ibanese, the Summer Islanders, and he's often seen in the Undercity, the rat pits and the black brothels, and some even whispered that one time he killed a man with his own fist. I'm like, oh, interesting. He had spent eight years in the East mapping lands and searching for lost books, and his name was soon across Old Town. And, you know, except for the part where, like, he kills someone, they kind of make Marvin sound a little bit like Jesus, right? Hanging out with all the common folk and all the people that you're not supposed to be consorting with. Uh, but it also kind of shows Marvin's devotion to knowledge, right, of all kinds, as we see in Davos's dance chapters, hanging out with all of these kinds of people, that's the best way to learn about what's going on in the world and the, that news. So on top of that, he, to me, it seems like he's just a pretty normal, regular yeah. guy that has some good shit going for himself. Like, it, it, we can also learn from, like, even Tyrion chapters that there's sex workers that are significantly better people than a majority of the the people that we deal with. If you look at, like, Chitayaya and, and their establishment, it's a professional business where they're well-respected for the profession that they put out. It's not just... They're not just sex workers as these guys are putting it and similar to like the the killing a man with his own fists at as the resident boy i feel <laughs> as though this is just guys bullshitting yeah i hear he fights too so not only can he cast crazy sorcerer spells but he can whoop your ass in the streets too watch out he's crazy and so we're you know how many people other than here at, at this table haven't killed somebody as the hound was what like six when he killed a dude Arya's killed hundreds of people by the time she gets anywhere like everybody's killed somebody <laughs> fucking whatever so he's got some blood on his hands he's also hanging out with some cool people like he looks like he's just like yo i'm gonna get the coolest crew around me and we're just gonna hang out and swap stories let's just share information what do you know this is what i know that's cool and so they just they really make Marwin out to be such a cool, likable, relatable person that I'm really worried George is just going to fucking yank that out and he's just going to be awful. Just so awful. And so that's a concern of mine, but I mean, I love Marwin. <laughs> he did teach Miri Mazdor everything she knows about anatomy and he believes in the higher mysteries. Uh, I mean, again, who amongst us? Has not murdered a man with their fists, first of all. Exactly. But, yeah. but uh, that aside, I mean, also he's traveled the entire world. Like, who knows? But he, I mean, for eight years, he mapped distant lands, looked for lost books, studied with warlocks and shadow binders. He's seen some shit. And you mm -hmm. can tell that he doesn't answer to the same power that, you know, Maester Gorman or uh, these, these kind of fake out little empty citadel people he doesn't answer to the same power or god that they're answering to right like he has seen magic yeah he believes it and he very much believes it that much is clear from the sam chapter when he shows up um that devotion is real and he believes in it and i don't know he it's hard not to like him he's very likable in a way the characterization of him reminds me of you know, like the elder brother, Maribald, these kind of gruffer characters that we meet that are like, ah, yes, child, I was in the war, and now I'm healing people for fun. <laughs> but he's not healing people for fun. He's like, I was in the war, and now I'm in the magic war. 
It's a little different, you know? I was in the war, and now the war's to come. Oh my god. <laughs> so, Vinegar Valen hated all of this about Marwyn, of course, and Archmaester Rhyme had told Pate, Leave spells and prayers to priests and septons and bend your wits to learning truths a man can trust. But, Rhyme's ring, rod, and mask were yellow gold, and his maester's chain had no link of Valyrian steel. Armin Armin is skeptical of Marwyn having dragon info, but Leo says that he's wrong. Marwyn has a glass candle burning in his chambers. Molander laughs at that. Armin sighs, and the Sphinx studies Leo, and Rune looks very lost. Rune doesn't know anything about what's going on right now. And the glass candles are apparently the worst kept secret of the Citadel, and we know this because uh, Crescent has told it to us, so... Not Crescent. Lewin has told it to us, so... Definitely worse kept, because we already know. They're brought from Valyria, some say thousands of years before the Doom, and there were said to be four glass candles. One is green, three are black, all are tall and twisted. Armin explains to Rune that the night before an acolyte says his vows, he must stand vigil, no lantern, no torch, no light is given to him, only a candle of obsidian. He must spend the night in darkness unless he can light it. Um, I don't know, sounds like a good nap time, but anyway, some will try the foolish, the stubborn, all cut their fingers on the ridges, waiting for the dawn with bloody hands. Wiser men simply sleep or pray. Oh, that's me, um, sleeping, but there are always a few who try. So yeah, I, these stupid candles, man, I love them so much because they're so, you know, there's so many questions brought up by them, um, I had a thought in my mind that decided it's not important anymore, I suppose, but uh, uh, I was going to mention the, the sharpness of the, the candles and cutting uh, yourself. It's very similar to the, the Iron Throne on the other side of the continent where people can sit. They These people who are supposed to be, you know, if you're sitting on the Iron Throne, you're expected to be the king, the hand of the king, somebody that's wise enough to be ruling the land. Obviously, we've not seen that yet. But then you have the other side here in Old Town where they're supposed to be the ones who are learning so that they can educate and heal the land and the people of it. And both of them have this trial of cutting yourself. And you can, at the Old Town, at least have that option of, I can try and do some wacky shit. I can learn from cutting myself regardless. You know, if you're not paid and you can take lessons from losses. But... Uh, I just thought that was a neat analogy, the, the, the king versus the, the knowledge over here with the cutting of themselves on those sharp instruments. Those who cut themselves aren't worthy of it, usually, right? So yeah. the worthy don't bleed from it. I love that. Um, I think I have some total tinfoil to bring Ooh. my own tinfoil in. This really yes. stood out, and maybe it's because of Hot D. I'm rebreeding Fire and Blood. And it's not very specific. It kind of implies all four of these candles are at the Citadel. But the green candle, the fact that there Mm -hmm. was one green candle really stood out to me. And it makes you wonder if that's the only green candle, if there were other green candles. uh, And what if the green candle was a literal green candle, right? Like passed down Mm -hmm. during the dance to the Hightower family. Interesting. Um, 
especially since, you know, it was brought over from Valyria a thousand years before. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe not. Or maybe passed down through the Hightower family through this time. But it does make me think of this line from A Dance with Dragons of Illyrio. His brow was dotted with beads of sweat, his pig's eyes shining above his fat cheeks. Jewels danced when he moved his hands, onyx and opal, tiger's eye and tourmaline. Ruby, amethyst, sapphire, emerald, jet, jade, a black diamond, and a green pearl. Uh, and of course Tyrion thinks how he could live for years on those rings, right? He'd have to get a cleaver, but he could sell those rings and live on them. Some paint thoughts himself. Uh, I don't know, especially with like, the dragon dream conversation that's been going on lately of the show, kind of hitching its, uh, its ride to the dragon tail and going all in on the dragon dreams. Maybe the Greens got their own candle, right? Maybe maybe Viserys could have helped to, to gift Alicent one. Who knows? Whatever. Either way, I kind of just really want Melora and Leighton to be gathered around a green glass candle in the Winds of Winter, right? I mean, these, these glass candles are just getting introduced in full at A mm-hmm. Feast for Crows and Dance. We're seeing them more, right? Sam talks about them with Aemon, or Aemon talks about them, sorry, but he spoke of dreams, never named the dreamer, of a glass candle that could not be lit and eggs that would not hatch. And of course, quaith to Danny. No, hear me, Daenerys, the glass candles are burning. Soon comes the pale mare after her others. We hear so much about these glass candles, more and more as the, the last two books kind of, you know, ramp up. So to me, that means we're going to see them a lot in the Winds of Winter, or at least more than this. And then bringing back to your point from earlier in the episode, there's also, I think, some heavy, heavy ties to the Lord of the Rings with the, the Palantirs hmm. there. Because oh. I've always I've always kind okay. of thought of the, the candles as being, I don't think that they're all here at the Citadel. Yeah. I think that they're spread throughout the world. And once they're lit, you can use them as a way to look through the other ones and potentially see or communicate long distances something of that nature and so if it's something similar to that then even the perhaps the green candle is more of sauron's tower itself that's the the primary candle the the main one that can see into all the others whereas maybe the other ones are just more of a receptive you know you can't see back through or something of that that nature but yeah, because that feels interesting too. Like, were there only four a thousand years ago? Were there more than four? Right, uh, re- reminiscent of the dragons themselves, I guess. When you think about it, like, how many did they actually bring over with them? Well, we know Aegon and his sisters had three total at that time, just themselves. But like the candles, were there more? Will we see more resurface? And can one of them be a parent and the others, the the children candles, or how does that work? How does it work? Right. Would you like to know more? I'm going to add to this tinfoil. Um, I know that, I don't know what it was. We discussed how they had like the different colored dragon glass and like that cash, right? Um, and green is associated when it comes to the children of the forest with uh, green dreams, prophecy. Could Could the green candles be able to maybe look at visions of the future, whereas maybe the black ones are more of about the present? So maybe her, the green one's less of the Sauron Tower and more of Galadriel's ooh, fount, ooh. Uh, pool yeah. where she can see the visions here. of the past, present, and <laughs> I love that. I'm glad you're here. I do like that. <laughs> well, and not only that, but there's something else about that. Um, Bran, when he eats weirwood paste, 
for example, and he's able to see history for the most part, or visions of the past we see, or mm-hmm. actual visions, right? Not metaphors, but he sees snippets and glimpses. Danny, when she has Shade of the Evening, is the opposite. She sees metaphors, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Her, her visions are kind of prophetic and metaphorical and very much so her interpretation of what she's seeing. Mm-hmm. So could it be that kind of difference, right? Because you have that is operated off of that inverted colored weirwood, right? That blue and black leaf mm-hmm. versus Bran's white and red leaf. And the black uh, being associated, maybe, yeah, maybe the black glass candles have to do with metaphors. And if there are red ones, because we know there's red dragon glass, could be right. the past. I don't know. Here's what we do know. Thanks to Armin. The glass candle is meant to represent truth and learning, rare and beautiful and fragile things. It is made in the shape of a candle to remind us that a maester must cast light wherever he serves, and it is a sharp to remind us that knowledge can be dangerous. Wise men may grow arrogant in their wisdom, but a maester must always remain humble. The glass candle reminds us of that as well. Even after he has said his vow and donned his chain and gone forth to serve, a maester will think back on the darkness of his vigil and remember how nothing that he did could make the candle burn. For even with knowledge, some things are not possible. So it's funny, uh, Chloe, that you were talking about how the, 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 the shade of the evening trees uh, give visions in metaphors. I mean, the glass candle itself. It's a metaphor. This is a metaphor uh, for the lessons. And, you know... We see Marwyn gets judged for retaining the humility of mingling with all the normies, you know, which which is apparently part of the lesson of the class candle that I guess no one really got. <laughs> I didn't see that on the syllabus, <laughs> technically, so. Well, it's just syllabus week. That's more semester two kind of stuff. Mm, so if you could mm. just slow your roll, slow your so roll. Is that, that's after Club Rush. <laughs> I, yeah, <okay>. Leo laughs, right? Uh, He saw the candle with his own eyes, he says. The light was brighter than any other candle, cast strange shadows, never flickered, even when a draft blew in. Ooh, kind of reminds me of the shadow babies in some aspects. Yeah, I was thinking of Miri Mazdur in her tent, the way the shadows Mm. dance on the the sides of them. Ooh, the shadows on the wall, the shadows on the wall. It's obsidian, dragon glass. The Sphinx muses, if there's dragons in the world again... Leo comments there's darker things than that. Old powers and shadows are stirring a new age of wonder and terror. Gods and heroes will soon be upon them. He wants another round, but Armin says they're done for the night because some of them mean to forge their silver link the next day. Leo jokes he'll remain because Rosie's there. And of course, you know, he'd like to get it on with Little Miss Thing. And Pate is not having that. He's like, not... Alaris is like, he can't even pay for a drink, Pate. Chill the fuck out. He can't pay for your girlfriend. They try to collect Pate. Pate wants to stay. Dawn hadn't yet broken, and the alchemist is maybe still on his way? Question mark. So just to put some more more stock in my theory, how the hell would Leo th- know all that shit about New Age, wonder, terror, right? and gods if he's not a faceless man in disguise? Oh, okay. <laughs> that seems a bit above his pay grade right there. Like, that or he's just drunk and bullshitting, but I'd rather think that he's the faceless man and that's him just accidentally <laughs> spewing out that he knows way more than he should. Yeah. He's just having a good time he trolling. He's giving himself away. Yeah. 
Well, and that's the thing is like, I do think he is being completely honest, right? In everything he's saying, which is why he's dosing it with like his sarcasm and his bullshittery in some aspects. George is like, here's a character to divulge everything about this chapter to you, if you care to listen. I love that. (laughs) I love that. They head out from the Citadel. It's no great distance, but none of them were ravens, right? No great distance as the raven flies, but they're not ravens. Uh, As they go across all of the little narrow streets, Armin tells Pate to be careful. He says the night is damp and the cobbles will be slippery. Everyone's gone, except for Lazy Leo, who still wants to trade barbs and asking about Rosie. He's like, oh, she's probably sleeping naked. You know, and oh, do you think she's worth a gold dragon? Really just fucking with him. And one day, he might find out. Leo might find out. And when her price has fallen, Pate can have her. Thanks, Leo. What a guy. Yeah, so I was just thinking about how they, uh... Pate heard Armin mention that the the night is damp and the cobbles will be slippery, and it just immediately brought to mind the the Crescent chapters where we first started hearing the night is dark and full of terror, and so uh-huh. to have that wet and slimy version of that here, where there's careful, it's dark and scary and slippery, and so you're basically saying that the night is dark and full of terrors. Don't don't get yourself killed. Especially because he's literally walking out and he's about to go hear them say that at their night, or their morning fires, at their prayers. Right. So it yeah, actually is true. kind of fun. And I mean, I mean to, to your tinfoil, right, Nate? I mean, like, why does Leo stick around, right? Like, most people don't like sticking around once everyone's left the tavern. It's kind of, it's kind of weird. Especially Especially the person that, besides when you're being racist, you've shit on the most. You've talked the most on paid and how he's this dirty kid and he's not going to do anything. And you can have Rosie when I'm done with her and all these other things just putting him down constantly. And whatever. That's all right. I like this kid, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Why is he here? No one knows. <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> I, regarding, you know, how he does end up here, right? We, we learn a little bit of um, Pete. He's pretty annoyed about this. He's like, I want to kill you. Uh, But Leo is also actually trained in arms from the Tyrell family. He's like, I would lose this fight. He thinks about how... I I like the way this is phrased. Leo has two names, right? Leo, Tyrell, and Pate only had that one name. Uh, Mace Tyrell was his cousin, and Morn, the commander of the City Watch. Another Rose, if you will. And of course, Old Town is led by Mace Tyrell's bannerman, Lord Leighton. And then the cider goes to his head as he rises, and Pate realizes that it's Dawn telling Leo to leave Rosie B, or he may kill him. And I, I'm gonna just throw it. I don't even think Leo. I don't think Leo even wants to sleep with Rosie at all. I, I think he just wants to troll Pate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, Leo's like, and he's having fun. Leo's like, sex is great, but have you ever gotten the people around you mad? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. He leaves, heads out towards where the sky's turning pink. He's like, I'm gonna go buy that donkey, wander Westeros, sign on to a ship, sail to Karth, and see the dragons myself. I'm sick of not living. Eat, pray, love. Oh my uh, god. Doesn't... Actually, though. Really. I mean, he just doesn't want to go back to the Citadel, which is the biggest thing. Right? And, and it's kind of funny, because it's such an opposite world than Sam and John. Like, Sam's having these thoughts in John, too. I, too, have these thoughts whenever I step into work, right? <laughs> like, that I could just quit and leave. But Sam is finally, like, himself walking into this world and understanding, wow, I could leave, and I could learn love from Gilly, 
this could be such a great breaking point in this book for Sam in general of him like realizing, wow, I could just like, you know, fuck my vows, get on a ship and go somewhere with the woman I love. And Pate is thinking these things and he's so close. I wish he would have. Oh, Pate, I wish he would have. Mm-hmm. I feel like I would have had more respect for him if he took off and yeah. bought a donkey and sailed the world looking for. I'd be like, you know what? You shouldn't have stolen from the, the the maester, but like, at least you're getting the hell out of here and you're doing something with your life. Like, right. who's gonna begrudge the kid for stealing their mom's last twenty and living their life running away to the circus or some shit? Like, let him do something. It's better than moping around and whining and not a. a applying yourself like at least you're going and doing something seeing the world that's better than whatever you are doing now yeah yeah dying (laughs) but i mean agreed agreed and it seems like he hasn't taken i don't know vows or whatever like he's still he could still leave he could still go because he kept failing all his classes you know he could still go (laughs) speaking you know earlier talking about john right like if Pate is Nega Sam, I don't know, Leo, I kind of think is like a little bit like a Nega John, right? In terms of that class, etc. Should have just left. <sighs> yep. As Agreed. sunlight breaks through the east, bells ring from the harbor at the sailor's sub- I I kind of love this. I love I love cities in mornings, like the time of day. I love this 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 part. Um there's another song, Softer Below, Sweeter, and that is of a nightingale. Here singing as well, the red priest gathering to welcome the sun outside their temple, praise the sun. And we have this quote. For the night is dark and full of terrors. Pate had heard them cry those words a hundred times, asking their god roller to save them from the darkness. The seven were gods enough for him, but he had heard that Stannis Baratheon worshipped at the night fires now. He had even put the fiery heart of Rolor on his banners in place of the crowned stag. If he should win the Iron Throne, we'll all need to learn the words of the Red Priest's song, Pate thought. But that was not likely. Tywin beats Stannis, he thinks, and soon he'll finish him and mount his head on the gates. Ho 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 ho! ho, 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 ho. Rip. Oh, Pate. Uh, we get this passage about uh, the beautiful starry sept, the black marble walls, the arched windows, where children, sorry, where the, the pious clustered like children gathered around the feet of an old dowager, and a beautiful look, of course, at the rest where the honey wine widens and the high tower where it rises, its beacon fires bright against the dawn. Love that. Love that image. And it does make me wonder, though, with all this talk of Magic and obsidian and these candles. Could the starry sept be obsidian itself? Interesting. A shiny black marble? Interesting. Probably not, because it's not oily, but I was just curious, especially with the high tower, right? The high tower is uh very much so described almost like a glass candle itself with the beacons. Interesting. It'd be and if that like ends up being used later. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do love the description of that high tower. It's tall. Many think that the lords of it prefer to rule from the top amidst the clouds, Lord Leighton included. Pate wobbles down his cobblestones, regretting he has no horse. And he thinks I have to get back to Walgrave, but then he falls in the mud. As he rises, another bad thing happens. The alchemist is here. He doesn't know it's bad yet. 
Standing over him, the alchemist says he didn't want to interrupt his fellowship ah, ah. Ah, with his uh, friends. Ah. He said the thing. He's, he said the thing. He's wearing a traveler's cloak, obscuring his features as the sun rises behind him. And he says, make your choice to Pate. And we get a flashback to Pate. Opening Walgrave's strongbox where a bag of silver stags, a lock of yellow hair tied up in a ribbon, a painted miniature of a woman who looks like Walgrave, and a gauntlet of steel, once belonging to a prince, who knows which one, laid. When he shook the gauntlet, a key fell out. If I pick that up, I'm a thief, Pate had thought. It was old, heavy, and made of black iron. It opened every door at the Citadel, supposedly. In the end, he stole the stags and the key because a thief was a thief. The White Ravens called out after him. Pay! 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 Yeah. Pate demands that the alchemist show him the money, the gold dragon. And the alchemist... Show me the money! <laughs> and the alchemist begins to <laughs> walk away. Pate chooses to follow, not wanting to lose Rosie or the dragon forever. So he goes with them, which is, I don't know, just don't follow strangers into dark alleys, but... <laughs> Pate's neither book smart nor street smart, is what I've learned. Um, The key up his sleeve is in a hidden pocket. The maester's robes were full of pockets. It's got pockets. Uh, They come down an alley, and the alchemist produces the coin, walking it across his knuckles. Very impressive. It glitters in the morning light, and Pate takes it with his hand. It's warm from his palm, and he bites it. He's like, I don't really know why I'm biting it, but I'm going to bite it. The alchemist asks for the key. Uh, That alchemist... As they say, read him for filth. He knew he was going to do that. And see, it is fun because Arya also uses a poison coin later in the oh. book. Uh, we also hear in this chapter a little bit about Pate's predecessor in terms of serving Walgrave. And you know what? It was Crescent who, wouldn't you know, also dies from poison. How fun. Exciting. Exciting. Amazing. And then you have, of course, the Warg, the skin changer in the next one, which is interesting. Changing yourself into something oh, else yes, yes, yeah. yes. identity True. close not exact but close i love that i lo- i didn't i forgot about the coin dude i fucking forgot about we maybe someday we should read those chapters those aria chapters <laughs> maybe Some, someday maybe 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 what if <sighs> we got wargs we got faceless men what what if what if we read i don't know yeah. what if i think you're saying we've got warren Morgan. Ooh, my god what Warren. if we call them uh, hey Warren, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Something makes Pate hesitate, unfortunately, and he's like, "What do you want? A book? A Valyrian scroll?" But the alchemist is like, "No, we're not playing this game." And t- Pate tells himself, "Run back, run back to Rosie, run back to the inn." But yet he lingers, and he asks to see the alchemist's face. He pulls down his hood to reveal a normal young man's face, bearded, a scar on his right cheek. A hook nose, a mat of black hair. I, I do not know you. Nor I you. Who are you? A stranger. No one, truly. Oh. Pate had run out of words. He drew out the key and put it in the stranger's hand, feeling lightheaded, almost giddy. Rosie, he reminded himself. We're done then. He was halfway down the alley when the cobblestones began to move beneath his feet. The stones are slick and wet, he thought, but that was not it. He could feel his heart hammering in his chest. What's happening? He said. His legs had turned to water. I don't understand. And never will, a voice said sadly. 
The cobblestones rushed up to kiss him. Pate tried to cry for help, but his voice was failing too. His last thought was of Rosie. Damn. I mean, he even had an oh moment. He did. Pate had run out of words. Oh, exactly. (laughs) Pate the the Quentin. Poor Pate. Poor Pate. Poor Pate. Poor Pate. Sad for him or whatever. You know, Uh, I mean. He put. Sad-ish. He died because he put the pussy on a pedestal and. Just- you never want to put the pussy on a pedestal. We've mm-hmm. literally been over that. We, we, that's we have. That's death. <laughs> yeah. It's death. So, yeah, my quick thing is, ha, the, the faceless moon said that he's a stranger. Get it? Because, like, in the seven and death. And then also mm-hmm. no one. Because get it? Aria chapters. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. It's well done. It's well done. It's cute. As somebody who, like, I get it it's just the faceless i feel like everybody has like their area of aswaf they like the most right i love the storytelling and the character analysis and like motivations of the characters i just don't the faceless men they're not confusing to me i get them it's just i've never gotten deep into them until probably today Mm. really probably today is the deepest i've gotten i love the faceless men they're i just like that that history of them Mm. they're they just got, you know, they're they're the initially they were the oppressed man, you know these these miners who are, you know, succumbing to these terrible terrible conditions, and we just kind of want to offer them a little bit, and that's one of our, Zach and I's favorite things is the mercy chapter and just mm. mercy in general as a theme and what it can mean in in terms of life and not just here in the faceless men, but you know King's Landing. We'll see, you know. Cersei being tortured and everybody else that's getting tortured over there for information and anybody that's just should be offered the gift of mercy in some capacity. And so it's it's really fun to see that evolution, you know, that uprising and then they become so powerful that they decide that they can take it upon themselves to start changing the outcome and events of the world and what how the, the the planet itself will be moving forward if rumors are to believe be believed that you know they're trying to stamp out or bring back however their your theories are aligning there but the the fact that they were initially you know slaves and yeah. they were just trying to make the worst of them have you know end the suffering a little bit so yeah, I love that. That's so interesting. Like uh, Arya too, right? We get that line where she's asking, starting to learn a little bit in A Feast for Crows about the faceless men. And we get very few crumbs, right? And he says to her, revolts were common in the mines, but few accomplished much. The dragon lords of the old freehold were strong in sorcery and lesser men defied them at their peril. The first faceless man was one who did. Um... There's all these little facts that are like mixed together, right? That George has sprinkled around, right? Uh, very little has he said about it all, but then he's talking about dragons being at an end, right? In the Doom of Valyria, and hinting kind of like maybe the faceless men were around for that too. Maybe they had a hand in that. <laughs> there's definitely something interesting, but there's also the question of like, okay, we know he kills Pate and takes Pate's face, as well as Walgrave's key. So now he has access to everything in the Citadel. One of the big assumptions, I think, by the fandom is that he's looking for some forbidden fancy books, right? Like the Death of Dragons, because we do know Faceless Men are mostly anti-dragon. But what else does he want, right? Like, remaining Pate, 
hanging out, getting a college education. He's starting to sound like me, first of all, okay? Second of all, Rosie's maidenhead. I'm like, what is... What does Pate 2.0 want now? What does what does he want? Because if he hasn't left yet, he's still there, mid-Sam. Or end-Sam, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, and that's he's changed up the persona a bit, too. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that you'll, if you haven't noticed, if it's not been brought to your attention, he, he identifies himself. He gives himself a name. And so he's no longer just Pate. He takes on Pate like the pig boy. And while it's not an official title or a last name, he has been mentioning how he, he hates that name and how he gets referenced by that. There's no, you know, and of course, that's part of George giving us that. See, he is that faceless man, told you. But at the same time, why are you embracing that type of a persona now? So now you're a bit more, whether it's confident or easygoing you're willing to accept the fact that hey you know what's funny is i have the same name as the pig boy <laughs> and he's he's embracing that and so there's definitely a change in the outward appearance that's being given off by the new pate yeah and there's power in names yeah if you would rather instead of new pate nate oh you nate? so you oh. want you want him to be like uh-huh. you want to be like pate i see Hell yeah, new Pate I do, you damn right. Faceless man Pate. New Pate now. New Selena now. <laughs> but Amazing. Um, I mean, I, there's also Pate of the Weepy Eyes in Sworn Sword. Do you remember him? There's a character named Pate of the Weepy Eyes. I love that Like Pate always has these little connotations, no matter where you get one from. In fact, there's like, I'm pretty sure there's a Pate in every Duncan Eggs. I think there's Steely Pate. Yeah. Yes, I yes, feel like yes. every single one has a pate. Am I making this up? Although there's also the pate that's Tommen's whipping boy. Oh, yeah. And so. It is oh, one of the sucks. most common you know. names. Um, yeah, there's a few of them throughout the Westerlands as well and the Riverlands. I think there's one that pops up, but they're mostly nothing of notoriety besides pate the pig boy. There is one at the Night's Watch, I think, actually. There's a pate, now that you mention it. Yeah. And. It's interesting, though, because Sam, when he recognizes Pate, as we kind of talked about a little, like, he knows something is off about this guy, and I really respect that about Sam. He straight off is, like, pale, soft youth that he misliked, uh, and that he's, like, kind of, because he doesn't want to be discourteous, but yeah, that's interesting to me, that, like, immediately he's thrown the fuck off. He's like, I don't know about this cat. I don't know about him. I was gonna say, what if people like new Pate more than they liked old Pate? That'd be so sad. Uh, well, that's what yeah. I feel like is going to happen. That's that outward because he's he's going to want to gain access to that. So he's got to be likable yeah. if he's in true, the true, Citadel true. and somebody stumbles on him. He's got to throw out the well, what's going on, <laughs> buddy? No, I belong here. What are you talking about? Of course I belong here. Look at me. Would I be here if I didn't belong mm. here? And so, yeah, I think he's going to be a whole new person. And I'm just really excited to see what, you know, Nate does. How Nate, many Nate? links do you think Nate the Pate? will forge in the wins a winner at least two oh he's gonna have two or three links by the time we see him and that's really how you're gonna know something is the fuck up because pate would never get a link not one not one yeah you think it'll take him that long to track down what he's looking for in there well i don't know i mean that's the thing is he's been there for a few months it feels like or a month at least a month yeah has he not tracked it down yet 
Shit. Oh, yeah. What if it's is the horn? Is he there for a bigger... The horn. Oh, my God. I don't know. He wants to get horny. I mean, uh, doesn't everyone in maybe. these books? But... Well, I mean, maybe. I mean... It does feel that way because Sam... Yeah, you're right. No, it could be know. because Sam, like... Well, because he has that awkward, like, Sam doesn't trust him. He already doesn't feel right about him. Yeah. There's going to be conflict there, isn't there? Yeah. There's going to be some sort of conflict. Sam is going to figure him out. Actually, there's a lot of things now going on there. I like that. Now that you've called attention to the name that I'm, like, thinking about, because, you know, you were talking about... So, the legend of Pate, the pig boy, is that he stood up against the lords and was someone who was a, a, a champion of the common men, the downtrodden, and that is kind of aligned with the story of the faceless men, to an extent. Right. But then Pate, like, the pig boy, and it's kind of funny because Sam was known as Sir Piggy for a bit. I don't know. Oh, yeah, he was known as Sir Piggy. So the battle of all the pig of the boys. Of the, the pig boys. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, maybe he wants to be besties with Sam. Like they're gonna start working together because he's trying to get him to relate with him. Hey, you were paid. Listen, it's not so bad being a Sir Piggy because I'm Pate the Pig Boy, so it's fine. It's all good. Oh, I God. do think though. I, I mean, I'm interested to see those tensions. I, I, yeah. I all jokes aside, haha. I am thinking that like there will be some sort of tension of either Sam will be directly at odds with new paint or mm-hmm. he will be forced to collaborate with new paint when shit hits the fan which could be weirder yeah oh interesting yeah i yeah how will that story how will that story play out i don't know <sighs> it gets interrupted by euron burning everything down so we don't even need to go further than that right so. that's true well and that's where the collaboration i would say could come in i mean what if the interruption right. forces them to work <gasps> together is kind of my like a buddy hey. cop, like Pate and Piggy, <laughs> and then Sam saves his life, and then all of a sudden this Pate, same as owing Arya all that shit, now it was him Sam three kills because also Arya and saved one of them, them from is the his fire. Dad. Yeah, wait, what? Oh, okay, well, maybe wow, not damn. that, but damn, three fires he shall know. Uh, <laughs> so who's the third fire for Pate? I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know. I, I'm also at the point. That maybe I believe in Lazy Leo now. Because it's just like it was real <laughs> contrived, right? So who knows? There's a lot in this chapter that I really don't think I saw previously on this read-through. Yeah. A lot. And, and every time I went into our notes for it, I figured something else out to think about. So hats fucking off to George on this one. It's a killer, literally. Of a chapter. Oh. Hey. Oh. Oh. Hey. What do you think? What are your big final thoughts, Nate, on your prologue chapter? I'm so glad that you got to be the star as Nate the Pig Boy. Oh, no. <laughs> Nate, like... Love it. Yeah. You have become no, it. I really enjoy... I, hats off to George, because like you said, there's... It was the same thing for me where I've been, you know, in my over-preparation to appear on your sh- show. I've read this chapter more times in the last three weeks than probably my entire life combined. Um, and yeah, each time I would find some little thing that stood out to me or I got hung up on. And so I just 
I I feel like about 80% of it's probably red herrings just yeah. there to, to screw with us. But the amount of detail he packed into it, because it feels like it's one of the shorter prologues compared to, yeah. like, Crescent was a freaking novel oh in itself. And, oh and so for being such a short prologue, to be able to cram that much detail, whether it's true or red herring, is just... Super fun to read. It's really a good chapter, especially like you. It's been said throughout the episode to to have such that heavy identity theme here going into this book, coming to a head after all the three the past books and how it's been developing there. It's it's exciting to get to read this chapter, starting out fresh and be like, oh, a whole new place that yeah, we're not going to see for a long time yet, but. A whole new place, and this is what's going on here. I can't wait to get into this stuff. Like, it, and it's just really hypes you up to get into the obviously best book of the series. Yes, exactly. It is Amen. the best book of the Hallelujah. series. Yes, that is the energy I'm looking for. Thank you. It's true though, because I was just thinking, like, how do you follow the mammoth that is a storm of swords? And this chapter does it. You know, this chapter. Yeah grabs you, puts you in it, and goes, all right, anyways, back to a feast for crows, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> it's big. I love that. <laughs> Chloe, I know it's big. Um, I know it's big, me about a feast for crows. <laughs> yeah. I know it's big. I um, do know it's big. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, we have had such a blast tonight with you, Nate. Um, I'm hoping that we don't see you too soon here at the Citadel, you know, skulking around with a key in your hand. However, please tell us once more where to find you guys online uh, as we get ready for next week with your brother. Yeah, it's I've, I've had an absolute blast tonight, but you can essentially find us everywhere by checking out our website, brotherhoodwithout.com, has links to all the social media platforms, all your favorite podcasting places to listen. Uh, if you'd like to send us emails, we respond very frequently. We like to get our regular inductees to the Brotherhood for each chapter, and those get sent to our email directly, withoutmannersbrotherhood at gmail.com. Otherwise, find us on Twitter, Facebook. We're pretty bad about doing stuff on Instagram, so you probably could avoid that and you won't miss out on much from us, but the other places were good. Yeah. We don't have an Instagram. No, we have our personals oh, and we'll keep it that way. <sighs> and what we use, uh, as you all know, we do use our Twitter and you can always find us, Girls Gone Canon, on Twitter at twitter.com slash girlsgonecanon c-a-n-o-n and of course you can also send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com yeah and make sure you're subscribed to us on a podcast platform near you where you can stream our episodes whether that is apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher acast you name it we're over there give it a google we'll come up of course, you can always find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where, again, we have bonus episodes for folks in the Stranger Tier and above, $5 and above tier, or uh, you can join our Discord, where we have activities and fun at, uh, wait, sorry, in the $5 and, okay, activities in the Thunder Tier and above, the $10 and above tier. Yes, we'll have our brunch later this month on the 28th. Keep your eyes peeled for some updates about that. And uh, we'll be having some House of the Dragon discussions going on there as well weekly, so we can't wait for that. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. 
We'll be back next week with Zach from Brotherhood Without Manners, who will probably talk so kindly of his brother. I can't wait to hear it. And uh, hopefully not too kindly of Veramir. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you again, Nate. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you having me on.